Welcome to Punkarama, where we are dedicated in our endeavor to get to every epitaph ever, where we wax poetic on nostalgia and aesthetics. So, welcome aboard from your podcast, Warlord, ladies and gentlemen. Big in Japan. You could call me that. I'm half Japanese and I'm 6'2. You're very tall. Thank you. Yes. I try. You're Batman height, by the way. 6'2 is Batman height. Is it? Yep. I feel like it's a lot of, like, that's like a height. I don't. I don't know what what it is about that height. Yeah. But when I was younger, uh, I wasn't. I wasn't always this tall. I was like kind of a short, chubby Asian kid. But for some reason, I had six two. Like that was the height I wanted to be. I don't know why, but I got to it. Nice. I like to think that it was through. I don't know some kind of will, willpower, something like that. Speaking of willpower, uh, William. Could have been your name because you're a, a gentleman, but your name is Phil. <laughs> and Will actually rhymes with Phil. Phil That's Casale, true. That's true. Co-host of a sister show, The Bitch Seat. That's true. Yeah, man. Where there's a Phil, there's a way. And just general uh, man about town, general, general knowledgeable dude, which That's, is why I wanted to have you on. I appreciate that very much. Do you think of yourself as that? Um, I do more than a lot of people do. So I appreciate that somebody else caught the sickness of thinking that I'm smart or knowledgeable. Oh, I didn't say you were smart. I just said you knew stuff. That's <laughs> the difference, enough. man. That, I, I suppose so. Is that something so. that you think about yourself that you don't think other people think about you, but you that want them I'm to knowledgeable think about you? Yeah. Or, or intelligent? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I don't know. I was sort of told I was an idiot for most of my life until right up until college when I was like, I, oh, I'm an adult. I'm going to just start giving people the finger and yeah. I got a real authority problem Good uh, from... Right around the end of high school up until now. I mean, although I've sort of tapered off. Yeah. Tapered off a little bit. You, um, you lose some of that piss and vinegar with age. It's true. Isn't that weird? It's true. And when I had a lot of it, I listened to Tom Waits. Mm. Speaking of Tom Waits, uh, that's the record that when I was, I have this podcast where we go through and we try to listen to the whole uh, epitaph repertoire. And uh, your pen just went out. There's some more over there if you great, want to grab great, some. But I'll, grab I'll, I'm going to cover the mic while you do that. Sure. Uh, we were. I was recording because I produce your other show, The Bitch Seat. And I was producing a live show. You are on stage. And uh, you were talking with someone about music. Uh, oh, the, the, it was about sad music because it was a Valentine's Day show. And it was yes. like, what music makes you cry? And you brought up Tom Waits. And I was like, Tom Waits has a bunch of records released on Anti, which is a sister label of Epitaph. True. Let's get Phil on the show. And then I brought it up to you. And you seemed like, I think I was just like, you want to you be on a show? And you were like, oh, all right. And I was like, oh, it's about Tom Waits. And then you kind of perked up from there. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I really do... I love Tom Waits. I love uh, reading about him. I love unraveling the mysteries behind the songs. Mm. Um, oh, we'll get, we're gonna get to yeah, that. Yeah, there's a few. There's a few in here. <laughs> this this record uh, was one of my fir- this is my first Tom Waits vinyl, and it was a double album because it has 18 tracks. So it was like a chore to get up and, and change a lot, but you know, totally worth it because this is um, it's really great to hear uh, the gravel. I, I I really appreciate the dirtiness. In fact, when I was doing my research, I was wandering around New York looking for a, a trash heap that I could sit in and just listen to the album. Wow. You know, just to set the mood. But then I, I settled sure. on Old Town Tavern. Because, um, you know. Did that. you actually go out and do that? What? Did you actually go out and like like sit at Old Town Tavern and, yeah, like, and, listen, a, and write down notes? Totally. That's awesome. I just did. That's wonderful. But I, and also, while I was driving around uh, working, 
I was listening to this on loop. I just because every song has a has a something. It certainly does. And uh, and it also took me through a certain point in college. Okay, that was interesting. So well, before we get to this, what I ask every time every person wants their first time on, mm-hmm. uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Nutley, New Jersey. We're gonna do a little quick, sure, little quick. Not really bio, but like sort of rock musical bio. Okay. So the idea, one of the one of the things about this show is that you know, it's this is about a label, right? This is about a label that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and that released a bunch of records that I and many many other people love, but also released a bunch of records that I had never heard of in my life, and so. Going off of this sort of idea that, you know, if a label signs one band, you probably will like the other because there's a shared either ethos or aesthetic or something that goes along to it. And so part of that is going out when we, you know, used to have to go out and buy music and buy records. You know, I'm sounding like a broken record because I say this for every goddamn show. But like, you know, you would go to your section, you know, alternative rock, punk, rap, whatever it is, and then you would kind of judge records by their cover, I'm assuming, and then maybe look at the back and say, oh, they're on this label or whatever. You know, there's there was a uh, process to it, you know, which we don't really have anymore. No. But we, you growing up in Nutley, New Jersey? Yes. Is that right? Where in New Jersey is that? That's uh, two towns over from Newark. We had a, okay. a town separating us from, from Newark called Belleville. Okay. And uh, we, used, we, uh, we were never good at football, either town, but we lived for the Thanksgiving Day battle between the two of us. Mm. Uh, because, uh, both it was, it's kind of like, you know, watching little league, but they're all 18. Just okay. like they're running around chasing a ball on the ground. Right. It was amazing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we're, I mean, it was a few towns next to, uh, away from Montclair, Bloomfield, um, Sea Caucus, all that stuff. Sea Caucus, not Secaucus. Secaucus. We say Sea Caucus, but also hey. people say Secaucus. That's okay. People I'm- also say Hoboken. Who says Hoboken? Uh, somebody from Weehawken. They're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> she means well. So, when have you grown up in Nutley your whole life? Did you were born I, there and all that? I moved there from Tom's River when I was five. Okay, um, which is sort of fortuitous because about five years later there was a cancer outbreak. That's right, I remember children. that. But you guys had a great little league team. I think still do. <laughs> Tom's River. Tom's River is not bad with with little league. I've I've heard that. Also in, in New places. Jersey, for people who don't know that Tom's River is also in New Jersey. When did you move from Tom's River? How old were you? I was five. Okay, so you weren't old enough to go out and buy music yet, right? No. In fact, I didn't really do that until, I would say, later on when I should have. Because I was very inundated with the Beatles and Frank Sinatra, and I was very... From family? Yeah. Okay. My, my mother would drive, because we had... Um, most of the family lived in Nutley, okay. and so we would drive up and down Tom's River, and they lived there when they were pregnant with me, and they would listen to Frank Sinatra, and they swear that uh, the osmosis uh, of the tape player slash eight track playing while I was in the car sort of aided my uh, development in terms of just preternaturally loving Frank Sinatra. Oh, okay. I was I was wondering where that was leading to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, loving because that could have been you. You got your looks, got your beautiful voice, no, got no, your no. your abuse towards women from Frank Sinatra. <laughs> uh, yes. But I know the third one not to be true. Suicidal tendencies. Really? He oh, we tried to kill himself Frank. a few times. Oh, um, Frankie. Very emotionally unstable. But when you so when did you start like buying your own music like getting your own cash and um, buying your own music? When I started, yeah. I was I was in middle school or high school. Okay, and I was very again going back to the Frank Sinatra. I was obsessed with lounge music, 
And there was a CD collection out called Ultra Lounge. And I would work at my grandfather's store and take the paycheck, which was roughly $35. Unless it was a busy day, then it was 50 What was your grandfather's store? It was kind of a wholesale resale store. Like they sold anything from porn to axe sandals to tires to um, perfume to carpet samples. Every, you know, we just sold a lot of things uh, just wholesale right. uh, to other people who would then sell them at like flea markets across from prisons. You know. Right. Um, so I would go there and I would, I would buy one. Or I would go on Napster. Wait, go where to buy one? Because this is a big Barnes thing. Barnes and Noble. Oh, you would buy. So that's that was your I didn't music really, place. Barnes I didn't really have too many. I had because uh, I, I couldn't drive. I didn't drive until I was like eighteen, nineteen, right around the time I, I left uh, high school. Okay. Because my my sister, uh, because she had to get hers at eighteen, she was like, he's not getting his license until later. But also, I failed uh, the the written exam a few times. <clears throat> for uh, your driver's license. For my for my permit. Oh, for yeah. your permit. Oh. But so this was so Barnes and Noble was the only place that was in like no, I mean, there was walking, skateboarding, biking distance, uh, walking distance. Walking and then, um, you know, at the mall, there was Suncoast, which was for movies, but different, different podcast. Uh, FYE for uh, your entertainment. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Sam Goody, which was Goody got it. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we also had a place when I when I could drive, we had a place called Vintage Vinyl, which sold records and just obscure shit and we still have it to this day i think it's in edison new jersey um and it's it's my favorite music place in in new jersey i couldn't really find too many because i i mean like in my area for some reason there was way more metal than anything else whenever you'd go into like the smaller music stores because your friend had a car or you got dropped off in a certain area you'd go for a walk it was always we had a punk scene in a hardcore scene, and I did not like hardcore because um, I I like you know melodics in my vocals, okay. and so and it's just a matter of taste. Um, but then there was like a lot of metal for some reason. Like my my friends were obsessed with Iced Earth and Dream Theater, and for some reason these things were easily found in like CD World, which was another joint that closed down, but was pretty great because it was low price stuff that mm-hmm. was a lot of used, a lot of good stuff. Um, but I mean, my music it grew from there. And I started to listen to Napster. I started to listen to Metallica a lot. Um, but that was where, that was, so when Napster started coming about, it yeah. was really, you know, that was the entry to internet music and like kind of not having to go to the rec- these record stores yeah. or anything like that. Vintage Vinyl, I feel like, I don't know if it's a, if it, there's just places named Vintage Vinyl because it's such an easy, yeah. you know, name. Uh, or if it's a, it's a, it's a chain or something like that. But like, I, I know of that place. Like, I feel like there's always bands that I know that are playing like some small show. It's a venue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 They, yeah. they roll out, like they have all the records stacked up, like, or like, uh, on these shelves that have wheels. So then they just roll them into each other and just make way for the, in the center. Of oh, the, really? Yeah. So it's like a modular, is it still like that? I'm not sure. I haven't been there. I need to go back there. Um, you know it's still open though. I hope so. I don't okay. know. I'll take a drive to Edison. Cool. I used to go to Edison all the time because that's where the Sam Ash was, and that was the closest one to me. Nice. That's so I used where to go there all the time. A lot of my friends. Where are you from? Staten Island. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. My uh, a lot of my friends are from Edison. Uh, Chris Aurelio, Onyx Sud, Frankie Z, Liz Hoey. Uh, we'll bleep their names. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, I, I, I'm not really sure when I began to discover albums, but I think it was when I. Right when I graduated, I discovered Led Zeppelin, The Who, Black Sabbath, 
David Bowie. It all sort of showed up at the end of high school. Who, how did you find them? Did you, so what, did you have, an, you don't have an older brother or an older sister. You have an I, older sister. I have an older sister, but I didn't, I didn't learn it from her. No we, music from her at all. No, well, Beatles mostly. We, oh, okay. we're big Beatles fans together. We went to see Paul McCartney with her brother one time. It was pretty great. Um, but that's kind of, that's where we relate is, right. is the Beatles. Um, so, I mean, I, I had all the, I had the, I guess the incubating incubator nest of safe music like the Beatles and Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. that that was with me there but also I started to get weird right around high school because I was trying to write a zombie movie that I was going to shoot in the high school and I was obsessed with Dawn of the Dead and ergo I was obsessed with Goblin the music band that made the the the, the score for Dawn of the Dead oh. uh, so I started pursuing obscure movie soundtracks um, and also going after Goblin um, and through that, you know, on Napster, you, you make spelling errors and you find other bands. So I found this, another band called Orange Goblin. And then I found, you know, they're related to, they had a cover of Black Sabbath. And then I, you know, downloaded some Black Sabbath stuff and went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in, um, in Ohio for a marching band trip because I was in marching band. And also a lot of my music time was, was blocked out by the musical theater I was in and also the marching band stuff that I was doing. So it was like, I was sort of, you know, when you're in high school, you're sort of trapped and slotted into the world that you inhabit. Sure. And in musical theater, at least, I was always trying to learn something I could kill at an audition. So when that ended, uh, that obsession, I was able to go out and find more things and not try and be hip. Stuff that, well, well, hip to... To musical theater. To musical theater. Right. No, no, no. I I completely get that because, you know, there's, that is a, you know, I feel like that is a uh, genre that some people kind of get to later, you know, Yeah. where like you appreciate musical theater later because when you're younger, musical theater is gay, you know, or yeah. something like that. I could see that. But, I mean, yeah. But like you, you had that advantage of having, of, of being open and accepting and appreciating that stuff. And so you have more context into, you know, just music in general, because I feel when, when kids grow up, you have pop music or, and then you have like rock music and then the popular rock from like back in the day, Yeah. you know? And so that's awesome to have that context to it. But then like when you were getting into like, you said all this classic rock Led Zeppelin and stuff, was, there, was that from like your friends? Uh, we had a record, a uh, record radio station called 104.3. And we noticed that they were essentially the, a mixtape of the same 20 songs. <laughs> and so I just started exploring those songs. And so right around college, I started, I, uh, when I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on the band trip, I bought a Black Sabbath album. I bought volume four, which was, I don't know why I did that. Because I, I had no, again, I had no context for it. I had no reason to be looking for it because I wasn't online. Did you like the cover or like you like the name? I, I just liked Black Sabbath. I thought it was the greatest hits. It turned out to be just their fourth album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I actually was able to enjoy a metal album. It wasn't I wouldn't say it was metal. It was just hard rock, proto-metal, I suppose. Yeah, I think proto-metal is um, safe to say. Yeah. Very L.A. influenced that one. And uh, I was able to appreciate it track to track and begin to understand what puts together uh, an album. Because when you're, when you listen to the Beatles enough before you understand that that's the way that they, they change things, you don't understand that they're building an album with, for a reason. You're just listening to music because you like it. But I think that was volume four was the first hint to me that many people have ideas about what an album should be. And they have, um, goals in mind when mm-hmm. they when they accomplish them and i think that uh to our going to our subject tom waits has a lot of um he has 
a lot of tells in his records about how he composes them. Uh, not just with this one. I think a lot of them follow almost the same. They, they all, they kind of have the same, um, rhythm or structure. Okay. Um, but this black Sabbath record was the first time you're saying that you looked at an album as a sort of constructed premeditated like piece of art and not just this playlist of songs yeah. that were just thrown together. And that's interesting. And right around that time too, when I was there, I bought Sgt. Pepper cause I never owned it myself. Oh. So I, and I was just only always heard the tracks in the car right. from my folks or something. Uh, but I finally got to sit down and, pick it apart and realize it's this one big yeah. cohesive piece, especially Sergeant Pepper. Yes. Of like of, of, of probably the most one, one of, if not the biggest, you know, most popular example of a concept record, you know, true, true. So Tom Waits, when did you first hear this dude? My freshman year of college, my director of the show I was doing, Michael Finnerty. He had a, he had uh fuck. I don't, I'm not sure which one it was. I think he had Tom Trabert's Blues on, um, which is the one that's like, Waltz in Matilda. That one, uh, it's, it's all piano. It's not very weird. It's just him and his crazy voice, and the it's very heartfelt. But I was like, what is this shit? Turn it off. Mm-hmm. I just didn't understand it because it was just an unpleasant voice. And I, as a child, had a irrational fear of Louis Armstrong. That's so funny you say that. I have that note that one particular song, yes, his voice in general, but one particular song sounds just like a Louis Armstrong Picture song. Picture in a frame? Uh, if we're going to zoom ahead, it's... Uh, yeah, that's hey. it. Jeez Louise. Um, Perfect. Look at you. Yeah. Knocking out of the park. You had an irrational fear of Louis... Well, as a kid, my parents would put him on just to watch me run into my room. I would say... I, I, you can just say fear of Louis Armstrong, and it's just natural yeah. that irrational follows that. <laughs> You have no True. idea where that comes from. It's just his voice. His voice. And um, I know as a kid, certain horns in songs would creep me out. Like in... Um, Lower brass? Or? Yeah. Okay. Oh, there, there's a very, very like uh, ominous brass solo in Peter Gunn's theme from the Blues Brothers soundtrack. That's mm-hmm. another one. I was obsessed with the Blues Brothers as a kid. Right. Um, and later on, just became, began to appreciate the blues themselves. Thank you, Blues Brothers. You're not so bad. Um I feel like everybody, do people shit on the Blues Brothers? I think they do. George Carlin has a whole bit like railing against the Blues Brothers for being white guy blues. And I'm like, no, that's they're turning you on to the blues. You're going to look for more and you're going to find Philly blues and Delta blues and all that stuff. Well, he's dead now, so I don't think yeah. you need to worry about that. I don't think fuck, a lot of people shit on him. the no, Blues Brothers. No, 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 I know. Of course. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people shit. At least I don't hear a lot of people shitting on the Blues Brothers. I think that, if anything, people are annoyed at like the popularity and people just quoting it over yeah. and over because you know what the, you know what the, the thing to hate I think about the Br- Blues Brothers is the annoying fanboy culture that it spawned where it's like this it is this like movie for band geeks where it's like oh you want to be cool alright as soon as you're in band and you find that movie you automatically get yourself a hat and the glasses and the tie and like you automatically but like all that all that and I think that annoy might annoy that people that could be annoying yeah I can understand that I mean it, and, and that that's neither here nor there uh, I it never isn't. really it isn't I never really fell into that because I I was very not, I don't think I was very well liked in middle school or even elementary school to the point where I never really told people I was humming Beatles songs because I didn't, you know, at a certain point you're just getting judged for sneezing. So like, 
At least I was. Okay. I don't know. I was, a, I was a heavy set kid, and they didn't like the heavy set kids. Who would? It's gross. I know. It's horrible. It's I mean, not good for your health. No. Why, if we, as a culture, condone fat people, then we are condoning our own death and mortality. Fair enough. I believe that. I'm a big follower of Nicole Arbor. Think she's a great comedian. <laughs> this is all completely in jest for those of you who don't get that type of humor. That's but, terrible. <laughs> yeah, she's she's awful. She's the worst. She's like it's it's like somebody trying to do an impression of Jenna Marbles, but like the devil possessing Jenna Marbles. The my biggest gripe with her, and every episode we go off on a Nicole Arbor rant. Not true. This is the first one, but I'm gonna make it a regular thing. Okay. My biggest gripe with her is when she was defending herself when she did that awful fucking fat person piece. She was like, "Well, you know, I make fun of myself too. I call myself like a, a Barbie on crack. Like that's like a humble brag. That, that's, you yeah, know? that's a fucking humble like, brag. You are just saying like, oh, I'm attractive, but like, oh, I'm a crazy attractive girl, you know? And it's ah, uh, just, it's just oh. I, I hate people that want they want to have their cake and eat it too because they want to be fucking offensive as shit, but then they want to lean on the the liberal um sort of oh i can do whatever i want because because i'm open-minded uh sort of thing but also they're uh, it's just so it's grating because it's like they're using they're using uh the rules as cover when they get shot at they're basically throwing something in front of themselves and that something is is just free speech i just don't like her and i already dislike self i'm over self-deprecating humor I, as a whole right now like, oh, you know, like, I don't know, like, we're we're both, like, in the comedy scene, you know, and, like, I know that there's a lot of people that, this is just me, who play to that, like, self-deprecating humor thing, because, you know, it is a trope, but at mm. the same time, it's like, you know, oh, you know, my stuff's not very good, then why the fuck am I listening to I you? I know. Like, have confidence in yourself. You don't have to, like, think that you be an egotistic person, but, sure. like... and hopefully uh, they'll, they'll figure out to not say that, yeah. because that just you're offering you're basically selling jokes and if you tell them that what you're selling is shit they're not gonna buy it yeah no one's gonna laugh yeah so whatever anyway tom waits tom waits people will buy his stuff they will um great segue back into this so (laughs) so this dude this this uh i can't believe we're we're all all the way back to this but this guy who is uh who's directing your play or something he he had it on you like i don't like this this is not this isn't uh candy to my ears right now nope Right, and so let's take it from there. So from there, uh, I had a radio show, and Ooh, we were playing. Good for you. And I was, I had a whole anti-emo front because I hated emo. Um, I just didn't like how you could say something's emotional music because all music is fucking emotional. But it's just really, it was more fuel to the fire of me believing that my generation was a bunch of idiots. But they're not the musicians themselves aren't saying it. No, no they're musician not. Calls themselves emo. It's it's the scene. It's the emo. scene that I hated. Okay, that's um, fair. Uh, the, the music is the music. I was a big fan of the Ataris for a while. Okay. Um, I, you know, right around that time I had OK Computer. I had the a lot of Wes Anderson soundtracks. I just discovered Radiohead, as I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I w- my tastes were, were changing. I was beginning to take in new things one by one. Okay. Um, and then one day I, you know, I, got, I went through a shitty breakup and um, I was alone and I went on Amazon looking for music recommendations, and I saw that Tom Waits' Swordfish, Trombones, and Closing Time, which is his first album, uh, were good music for, quote-unquote, for people who want to be saved, or at least, I don't even know what that means. What a weird way to I don't know what that means. That. Um, but I, I, I got both of them. I got his, because they're both clear marks in the eras of Tom Waits, and I, that's where it began. Mm-hmm. So, swordfish trombones being 
the first one. Um, and just a strange, strange record it makes, it's just sonically, it's, it's just, there's something off and very in your face and aggressive. And, um, my girlfriend, Lissa hates Tom Waits. Um, we play a game where I'll put a song on and I'll wait for her to notice that it's a Tom Waits song and tell me to change it. Um, and she, I think she is very intimidated by the, his macho bravado. And I didn't understand that, that there, that existed. I just thought it was a strange gu- He He is himself a strange guttural creature. Yeah. I don't think it's macho. I just think he's wounded and he's singing a song. I, I, okay. I, I don't think, I think yeah, there's, he's, he's a, he's a male. There is a masculinity involved. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's a sexual ma- masculinity. I think it's just, I, I don't understand that. You're saying that she thinks that he's imposing his masculine machismo through, through this sound. Like yes. He's, he's like not forcing it, but like pushing it out there. Well, I mean, with his voice, it kind of sounds like he's pushing something out there on some, but On not some. all. Yeah. Which, all right. We, maybe we should start getting into this. Let's get into this because right we're now. About a half hour. Okay. So I'm going really quick. Uh, this is perfect because I'm gonna I'm gonna list off everything I know about Tom Waits to you right now. Okay. <clears throat> Ready? No, that was it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. The only thing I swear to God, the only thing I knew about this dude is that he had a, had a crazy rough voice and that he was in cigarettes and alcohol. Uh, that, yes, that movie. Cigarettes and coffee. Sorry, cigarettes and Sorry. coffee. Cigarettes and alcohol is an Oasis song. <laughs> um, but that's that is truly all I yeah. knew about him, and I knew that he was this dude that. Or this is what I. This is not what I know. This is what I thought of him, and I can still think of him. He is this dude which who is lionized in our culture by certain people who are of an independent mind back to the or Blues Brothers appreciate that stuff. Like the, the, you're going back to the Blues Brothers of like your, your, well, I mean, I was railing against the scene. You, you as well. You didn't like the Blues Brothers uh, sort of aesthetic. Oh, but also, I'm not railing against anyone. Okay. I'm not railing against anyone at all. I'm not saying it's bad to lionize okay. them. I'm just saying that that is the culture that, that I think, would you disagree that there is this subculture of independently minded people who appreciate independent art that sort of lionize Tom Waits as uh, as uh, you know, a a not deity, but just uh, this amazing artist. You he know? is well. He he is not a singular thing. Tom Waits was born December seventh, nineteen forty nine. Um, I don't know the names of his of his family because I am not a good fan. But uh, he has a, a hearing disorder called, I believe, sonic dysplasia. Oh, I didn't know this. He okay. hears things differently, oh. and so his music also is a reflection of his of his point of view. But also, Tom Waits is an actor. Uh, he he's produced several musicals um he is a uh you know his his shows borderline on border on cabaret or performance art Mm -hmm. so he he has his fingers in a lot of pots he does a lot of charity work and he's a guy that sort of defies categorization much in this much uh closer to bowie in that he has very clear eras when he starts out he's a singer songwriter he's just some la dude you know he was raised in la he was raised Always like sort of halfway in the desert, halfway in the in the city of it. Um, Are you saying this to contest what I was saying at all? Uh, no. Okay. No, no. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm yes, ending. Okay. No, no, that's cool. I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering. Like, I, I agree yeah. with you. They, they do because he is a chameleon, in that he, he does. He oh, you're does explaining why. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, bring it on. Because I didn't know about the the hearing thing. That's interesting. Uh, he's a guy that he he acts in movies, and when you hear about a a musician acting. I, I am sure you you want to cringe, 
but he's a very he's a good actor because he himself is just a strange character. He's a character actor. Okay. Um, because he is, if you just put him in front of the camera, he's telling you a story just by standing there. Because mm-hmm. he, he's just such a strange-looking individual. Yes. Um, he is in. He's worked with Francis Ford Coppola to score uh, several of his movies. Okay. Uh, he is a fa- uh, friends with Terry Gilliam. He's been in a few of his movies. Um, he's just a guy that. He, he's got his own, I mean, <clears throat> the metaphors, everybody like, he's obsessed with junkyards and used things and broken stuff and repurposing. Mm-hmm. And in the, very much in the same way that he pr- produces things. He likes to make sounds that are, you know, unheard of and not done before. And he likes to make his musicians play instruments they're not familiar with or comfortable with because he wants, he's after a certain otherworldly sound, but also a very familiar sound. It's like he's almost trying to make the sound of a of a dump truck mm-hmm. with music, or a sound of a you know a trash heap, or a uh, just a downed ship, or whatever he's whatever he's going to talk about, which is more or less all that that sort of broken imagery. That's his aesthetic. That's his aesthetic. Absolutely. So that is all in service to this idea that he is this uh, very highly looked upon, uh, you know artist i don't hear much i don't hear anything bad about him okay i never i and i'm sure if i if i ever went into it then i would i'm sure there's i'm sure there's. i didn't i just know that people who have you know some kind of discerning taste in arts and who I, i to me have a certain level of intelligence appear to love this dude you know and really like him and almost to me, he seemed like this infallible person because I've never heard anyone say speak ill of him, and that is a very high bar for me. To of course, and then here you are coming in. Here I am. This is and to I don't, I don't did I say this on the recording yet? This is my first time I've ever listened to a Tom Waits record. I've heard Tom Waits songs before. This is my first time listening to a whole record of his. And so with all of this leading up to it, the bar for him to deliver this is <laughs> pretty high. It's huge. It was. It, extremely high and this is this has nothing to do with him this has everything to do with me yeah. and my subjective experience of this and so let me tell you i listened to this record a few times as did you of course but today you listened to it a few times yeah i listened to this record a few times the first time i heard it i was like i had this very much i had this like perception like where my arms are crossed and i'm like all right impress me you know like bring it on and with that, it kind of fell a little short. And then every time I listened to it after, I appreciated it and liked it more. Yeah. For the most part. Okay. So with that said, we're going to get into the first track of his on this record, which you guys already heard a bit of, called Big in Japan. Talk over these songs. Oh, great! But I like okay. I like to let them breathe a little bit at the top. Are we on right now? We're on. Okay, great. If you can hear yourself, you are on. Oh shit! All right. Well, this is big in Japan. Clearly, uh, a lot of his songs, they, a lot of his albums rather, they they start with a bang. Uh, Bone Machine in '92, he starts out with going out west. Um, I think he he always identifies himself as a loner or somebody who's an acquired taste. Um, 
And it's sort of funny because this is kind of an anthem where he's big in Japan, where in that, you know, he he mentioned he went to Japan one time and he saw these actors who he hasn't seen work in America in years. Yes. But they were, you know, selling underwear, selling... Minolta cameras. Minolta cameras, whiskey, whatever. They were selling everything and they were getting paid handsomely for it. So we were, he's writing a song about that, but I think he's also taking a stand. This is his first anti-slash-epitaph record. This uh, is, yeah, yeah, And yeah. he was very excited to start because... Island Records, his previous label, were kind of trying to clamp down and release more compilations and try and make more popular music, and he was having a hard time with that label. Oh, this is good. If you can speak to more of this, then go for it, because I, I couldn't, or at least I didn't find much on it. So he was on Island Records before, yeah. and so what was going on there? They were trying to just like put more compilation well, I, I albums and make just, some easy money off him, and he wasn't into that? Yeah, I mean, he's one of those guys that if he sees, thinks he's getting fucked over, he immediately goes for his gun. Uh, he was in court for a while because he sued the Cheeto. Um, Frito-Lay. Frito-Lay. He uh, did that a bunch of times, uh, yeah, apparently, they, those lawsuits. They basically were doing a Tom Waits impression in the old commercials, not the ones that like we saw when we were growing up. There were much older ones where he's just basically like, hey, man, I'm Tom Waits, and yeah, I like Cheetos. That's like basically, he may as well have just said that. Right. Uh, but this song, back to this song, I think this is him taking a stand and being like, I, I ain't, I'm not going to be big in America, I'm big in Japan, because I have fans that like me for what I do. I'm big, you know, I don't have, I don't need it. Really? I so, think so you think that with this song, he's he's like kind of like, I'm write, a weirdo. Here we go. Writing off America and like because America is like puritanical and about convention, and I'm going to be embraced in somewhere that you know likes weird things. I uh, this record came out in 1999, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think he Just to give us context. I don't think he's ever gone out against America. I think he's gone out yeah, against I don't think the, he's an anti-American the, dude. the machinations up top. I think he's definitely got more political the older he's gotten. But I think he cuz I a lot of his his songs are all mostly about the landscape of America. This is very tongue-in-cheek song. It's yeah. very tongue-in-cheek oh, to yeah. say I'm I'm gonna, I'm big in America because he is talking about himself. Unless he's talking about something else, he could be talking. I think he's either talking about himself or the actors he saw in Japan. This is um, but this is a weird song for this record, and in my case, oh, yeah. the oeuvre of of Tom Waits. First of all, this is a fucking awesome guitar riff. Love this guitar yeah. riff. It's dirty as shit. And it's you great. Listen to Rain Dogs. Keith Richards does a lot of guitar on that. I will listen to that uh, afterwards. But cool. like, this is a great fucking riff. Great to start off the Absolutely. album with. Absolutely. But like, this is a very tongue-in-cheek, ironic song. And the rest of this record seems completely earnest and and you know sincere. Yeah. Which is the opposite of this. And there's a there's a few times where this record kind of like goes off on these different tangents and this is certainly one of them at least to me in terms of like the uh not the subject matter but like the tone of it you know yeah does, does he does he play with irony a lot or like in oh yeah things he does okay. yeah because yeah, i know absolutely. he's like kind of a funny dude you know he's not he doesn't take himself too seriously he's got a very dry sense of humor yeah yeah, yeah. um you know there's, there's been a lot of other songs a lot of different openers that just seem like they're driving ahead and in, right into the album like this is one of them he yeah. has one called hang on saint christopher uh, at the top of Frank's Wild Years, that just sounds like it's just driving headlong into the rest of the concept. Same thing with uh, Bone Machine, the way that Going Out West, all of these songs probably don't sound at all familiar to you. Going Out West is in, um, I believe that's either Big in Japan or Going Out West is in um, Fight Club. I forget. Okay. Um, but these are these are songs that just there, it's like he's just pulling into the driveway real hard. Well... Okay, but like, do, does he, like his other records, in terms of the tone, 
are they because the rest of this record I, maybe you'll, you'll disagree with me do you do you my, what i'm saying is the rest of this record is very genuine and sincere oh, yeah. in terms of its matter and tone this is the only one that is uh, ironic at all now with the rest of his stuff is it also ma- ma- uh you know the majority of it is sincere and genuine or is it is it usually a mix or like what 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 happens like with with that stuff you know um i think it's a mix it's a mix uh, he, okay. he goes i mean every song is a character i think to mm-hmm. him um at least I view it as, you know, some, he has a song called Sure Leave, which builds on his experience working day and night at this pizza joint when he was a kid, but it's also about being on a ship, mm-hmm. you know? So he's taking his experience and grafting it onto some German expressionist strange song, because uh, that whole period you have to go into. Um, I, I think that he is known for the, for the sort of that sort of humor, irony, he doesn't really hit it too hard on this album, but he doesn't feel like Filipino Box Spring Doll or mm-hmm. um, Box Spring Hog. Box Spring Hog. God damn. Well, we're going to uh, get to that. We'll get to that when we get to that, if you've got stuff true. to say about it. I do have stuff to say about a lot of these things. So let's well, go to the next one. Well, hold on, no, hold on. I still yeah. got more to say about Uh-oh. Big in Japan. Les Claypool played bass on yes. this. The Primus man himself. He, they Optimus were Primus. Frequent collaborators like around that time. Apparently. And it makes sense. They, they share that. Uh, aesthetic and even that sort of sonic aesthetic to it uh it's got this big vocally percussive like beginning and ending yeah you know which uh, i don't know i never expected this out of him but the more that i want the more i listened to this record and the more that i looked into it there is all of this hip-hop culture that's a part of this so this is essentially him beatboxing yeah like, in the beginning and end this of is this. his first record using a turntable oh yeah and, uh, that, that was amazing to me that because I, I was listening to a track we'll get to later and i was like is that a fucking turntable like yep. scratching and I, I didn't like it at first and i still don't think i like it but uh we'll get to that when we get to that you're yes. right let's get to the next track track two is the low side of the road Okay, so right off the bat, this song sounds like it's fucking being played off a wax cylinder. Yep. And like, I get that aesthetic to it, and it's got this like, like all the percussion, all the instrumentation. It's this, it's this quaint buckboard instrumentation from the goddamn Wild West. Yeah. And I get all that. This is more of what I was expecting from yeah. this song. Okay. How and ever. This song is so stylized that it sounds pastiche to me. Like I like I get he has this aesthetic, but it, there's so much of it on there with this. Like it almost seems like he's doing it just to do it. There doesn't seem to be any or, and I, I, I'm not trying to attack no, the song that much, but like, you know, you give me your, your... There are better songs. I'm not saying this is the too bad of a song, but I'm just saying this is so 
heavily produced in the opposite way of sounding crisp and compressed yeah. and all that stuff that it's like it, it, it sounds pastiche it sounds like you're trying to make something sound like this because because it's a it's a stylization thing as opposed to doing it for the sake of the song and in service to this piece to this yeah. to this track what do you think of this well i think he uh he went a little he might have went a little overboard in the production uh, I think I, on a few tracks in this album, but I think it was mostly him uh, in the studio because he just likes to throw shit into songs. Mm -hmm. Whenever he talks about songs, he always mentions how he's putting it together from like a used hanger and an old dress and a broken clock. Like he's he's using th this imagery uh, to talk about the way that he constructs things, and so everything is sort of put together for a reason. And I like, I really just love the 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 part in the song. When it's like, it almost sounds sort of 8-bit, mm -hmm. and it sounds kind of creepy. But also, I, this song is another song, I think, that's sort of, that's sort of uh, following the trend from the first one. He's talking about the low side of the road. I think he's talking about where he travels. Following the trend from F the first track? Yeah, you said the first, first track from Big in Japan. Okay. I think that this track, uh, following from Big in Japan, is another song about an outcast, about somebody who takes... Setting himself up. Setting himself apart. Interesting. Um, but then the next... Wait, what's the... Do you have more to say about this track? I do. Okay, I, do. I would like to hear. Okay. I'm going to go back a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Close your eyes. You're actually doing good, good, good. I want you to do this. It's creepy. All right. Next dead one. APN Sundays. <laughs> this is not the fucking perfect song for the betting of a absolutely. goddamn Deadwood. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, promo. Like the first time I heard when I first heard this, I was like, "This." But but that it's like ain't no. Uh, what's that Johnny Johnny Cash song? Ain't no grave. Oh, you're talking. To, asking the wrong guy about Johnny. Cash. Anyway, uh, that's what this is kind of like. It's that that driving sort of getting into. Like, it's sort of gritty. It's very. You know, if you're walking to the subway at six in the morning, you're just sort of this is the song that you'd be listening to because you're feeling like garbage. Interesting. <laughs> I think, but I think that's like the fact that it fits so well into that sort of promo. Did you ever watch Deadwood? I watched a few episodes. I, I I'm I'm just starting. Okay. Because I I just started with it too, and yeah. I loved it. But like it like. I think that is what lends to the idea of it being so stylized that it fits in so well as a promo yeah. for that. Uh, for that show and that sort of like aesthetic and context. Uh, oh, here's the other thing that this, it, it, uh, like, I don't think the song is necessarily a bad song, but it's just so, I feel like it's so overproduced because none of the other songs no. have that, that wax cylinder like sound to it. But okay, this is what it sounds like to me when you were in grade school or elementary school, right? And you needed to make a project that was like the Declaration of Independence and how would you make the paper? You would take the paper, you would soak it in tea and you would bake it in the oven. <laughs> this on. sounds like a song that was soaked in tea. Like a, a take the song on its own merit, right? Yeah. The song itself is a cool fucking song. The yeah. instrumentation of it's cool. Uh, I haven't even really gotten into lyrical content, but I'm sure that's cool too. It's got a cool sound. But then you just took the whole thing and you soaked it in tea and baked it in the oven. Yeah. And I think that's what came out of it. And that, that I think is my major gripe with this track at least. That's fair. This I feel like this is one of the last 
Well, I wouldn't say last, but it's one of the few the last vestiges of his 80s output. He's very much into the, the overproduction, making things sound like they're coming through a, a, a telegraph wire, making things, you know. But this is the only song that does that. I know. Other them are, there's others that are lo-fi, but this is the only one that is lo-fi to that extent. Yeah, and I think that's probably why he front loads the album with Big in Japan and this, okay. is because I think it sort of offsets the rest of the production, which gets very sincere very quick. Yes, the next a lot track. of ballads and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. let's let's get into the next track so from low side of the road to hold on uh so you could just much more the, but much more cleanly produced yeah, than the rest you can and feel like, the golden hour right feel the golden hour you know this is i don't know if he does many covers but this being a bruce springsteen cover is like you know really telling funny enough actually this is this is a this is his song i believe but it is his song, but and that's what the rest of the internet says, but I refuse to fucking believe it that this isn't a Bruce <laughs> well, Springsteen Well, he wrote Jersey Girl, and Bruce Springsteen covered that. I guess that makes um, sense. Uh, you know, he's not a commercial guy. This song, you could play it. This could be someone's first dance at their wedding. Yes. This song is is often covered. Actually, they, uh, they cover it in The Walking Dead of all places. Um, one they of the, cover it? Yeah, Beth, she sings it in an episode. She's like, when they're in the prison... Uh, she sings it by herself Well, it's like a montage of people getting on with their lives Right yeah, But this song, like I, This song just opens up my heart There's a few of these songs This album, I think, has a lot of his ballads uh, love, love songs and, and things of that nature But I don't think that he is a typical love song or balladeer No um, Because not, his songs aren't I love you now and I'm a young This is all young love This is worn love This is like we're, What are we doing tomorrow? This is like, you know, enduring love. This isn't about fucking, I want to hold your hand. This is, I really hope that we can keep this together. You know? Uh, and I, I appreciate that. I think that that helped me in my 20s to sort of move past the adolescent aspect of courting and, and all that stuff, relationships. Interesting. And seeing people not as objects or to be one or, not, or as images things that, that'll save you. It's more like seeing another person as a human being. And I think I learned a lot of that from Tom Waits, especially wow. this album. That's a very mature lesson to learn yeah. from uh, from Tom Waits. But, like, it, it is so, again, this is so glaring. Maybe, you know what, maybe that's what some of my issue is, is that there's, like, all of these crazy left and right-hand turns because this is in such stark contrast to the previous song. This is so... You are absolutely right. This is so fucking VH1 produced, like for yeah. VH1. This is the only single on the record, by the way. Oh yeah. Uh, and I, the minute I heard it, I was like, "This is, must be the single." I looked it up, and yes, it was. But like, this sounds so much because of that overproduction. Sounds so much like a Bruce Springsteen song. Yeah. Like it is. It was uncanny. They're it was very like similar, and you could see that in a lot of the stuff that he produced. Before he went crazy and got married. Mm -hmm. um, funny enough, Tom Waits got married and then immediately got into the weird output because um, his wife started writing songs with him and producing with him. And so she. She's a co producer on this record with absolutely. Tom Waits, yeah. And she is a lot. I mean, not, not to blame, but she. It, I think his shift in the 80s into that sort of carnival German expressionist music he started making was a lot to do with their collaboration. Before that, he was. You know, very much. You know, he, he. There's Jersey Girl. There's there's Martha. There's all these other these songs that are very much about wounded love, and and about 
you know, seeing somebody as a human, you know, the way that well, everything I was espousing. Um, but I think that a lot of his songs he writes for Kathleen because they have a very great relationship. Yes. I think this is one of them, and I th- there's a few, and actually there's some Easter eggs in this about her, um, which you'll eventually we'll get to. We'll get to in this song. No. Oh, in this no, record. And on the record. Right. Okay. Um, uh, have you heard or seen the VH1 storytellers he did? Yes. To promote this record. Yes. Okay. So Love it. he does a lot of explanation for some of these songs on this record that I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> and luckily, I have them, so we'll play them, and he'll you'll hear it straight from the horse's mouth uh, of him explaining some of these goddamn songs. Yeah. Um, They're not. I don't know if they're all necessarily true or just good stories. Here's the thing with that. I I thought about that too because. Like, I was like, oh, maybe he's just playing around. But he seems, again, so genuine and sincere, since sincere, especially in that special. That I don't like. I I have to. To me, at least, I yeah. believe it. And I don't see any reason why I wouldn't, because they don't seem too bombastic or funny. Like he's trying to get yeah. me over. But uh, do you have anything else on hold on? No, I just love it. I could probably just listen to this a few times in a it's row. It's a nice song. It's it's a little vanilla for me. A little in bit in terms of the stuff on this record. For him, this is quite vanilla, I would say. Um, but it, for, but it just really, it just shows you what a unique artist could do if they're actually just playing the rule by the rules. Mm. Whether or not he was playing by the rules is one thing. I think he didn't realize he was doing it when he made this, but. And I think that you, for an artist like this, you can appreciate a very conventional song like this because it is an outlier. And yeah. it's not the norm for everything else. Because if you just started doing stuff like this... If this was an entire album, I right, wouldn't like it. Right, and I think that... Um, I would assume that that's probably the case for a lot of people I dig in. So let's get to the... Uh, finally, the nice, old-fashioned uh, bestiality track, Get Behind yeah. the Mule. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like Get to Work. Get behind the mule because you got to work. Oh, you think that's what I it think, is? I think it's not about bestiality. Is that what you think? No, that was just that was uh, for humor. Fair enough. I think this is just getting up early in the morning, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Kind of sweaty. This song. Very sweaty. It definitely sounds like something that you'd be shoveling, like... In, uh, in, uh, oh my god. What is that Paul Newman movie I'm thinking of? Oh, Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke, yeah. just on the side of the road. Oh, yeah. Slicing off the stuff. So, in the, I'm not gonna play it on the, for this track, but in the VH1 Storytellers, he talks about how the, at least the inspiration for the title of this song was, uh, he was talking about his wife, Kathleen, right? Yeah. That's her name? Kathleen was like, oh, I didn't marry a man, I married a mule. And he's like, well, you gotta get behind the mule. <laughs> That uh, that was one of the supporting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, and they they have a very strange shorthand between the two of them, and that's just one of their phrases. So you were saying, okay. Uh, one of the interesting things about him, and at yeah. least this record, is that. His voice is okay for this song is so drastically different than Hold On. Yeah. You know, and he does that throughout the record. Yeah. Where his voice really it's not just either a soft or a hard song. It runs this gamut of of this like he has this like Tom Waits palette of of sounds that he makes with his yeah. mouth. And that's interesting to me that he does that. It's true. Yeah. It's the, almost the same way Paul McCartney has certain voices in his toolbox. 
Where like he's got the screaming proud black lady, he's got the poppy Paul, where it's like, okay, this is Paul. This he's got the screechy Paul. He he has different types of screaming. Okay. Same thing with Tom Waits. Tom Waits has different kinds of characters. You know when he's t- there's a you're gonna get to it, but he has a compilation called Brawlers, Ballers, and Bastards. Okay. Um, one of them is a lot of the CD is just talking tracks. And every one, he's a different character. I mean, he's just talking. Right. But he's, I mean, he's reading a poem. He's telling a bedtime story. He's talking about cars that he lost. Do you think that's self-indulgent? I think it could. That? I think it is, but I think it's also, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I think it isn't to an extent. I think that when he started, he was basically trying to be himself. But I think he found it easier to get behind characters, get behind the mule. Um, and show these present these songs uh as a, as a different person his um his tour movie big time is kind of like that this is like a doc or it's kind of a doc but it's also it's a concert movie okay. um but it's you know it's him with different sort of he has different props and things that he on stage and he presents himself differently uh for you know song to song but he's also just an oddball yeah. like the way that he carries himself on stage he almost moves like Max Shrek in some instances from Nosferatu. The way that he kind of he curls up sometimes, but then sometimes he doesn't. He just it's it's all this body language he presents. I wouldn't be surprised if he's doing it in the studio when he's recording these songs, like contorting himself to get to that character that he's hoping for. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't can know. Absolutely if, see that. Yeah. So I can because see, changing your body position absolutely changes the tone of your voice and how yeah. it works. I I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that at all. Yeah. I think you're on to something. But I, I, th- I don't know. I, I could see it being self-indulgent. But you could say the same thing about Bowie. He's a different character in whatever record up until Let's Dance when he is just Bowie to the duration of his career. But um, uh, Here's the thing with that. Because, okay, if I say, you've, let's say you made something. And I yeah. was like, Phil, this is, a, this is a self-indulgent piece of work. You would take that as a derogatory thing, right? I would a little bit, but I mean, yeah. Because, like, I think that that is what that term has sort of garnered in our culture. True. But I think that you can look at something being self-indulgent as an objective thing and whether or not that piece of whether or not that that piece of art is good or appreciated that's where the subjectivity comes in because this of of a uh, uh, Tom Waits just doing spoken word stuff is self-indulgent but if it's great then it still means it's a great piece of work yeah. it doesn't mean it's not self-indulgent oh, same thing with a lot yeah. of stuff with Bowie you know uh, and I'm not I'm not purporting to be the lo- the biggest <laughs> Bowie uh, fan or or um, you know person who knows any stuff about him but like a lot of his stuff was self-indulgent but that doesn't mean it wasn't good true you know I don't think there's a mutually exclusive you know no I yeah. don't think so either uh, thank you for helping me uh, come to terms with the self-indulgent. Okay. Oh, I'm glad I say, did that. Hey, let's say this is self-indulgent in a good way. Well, I'm glad I could do some Tom Waits good and uh, get you to have a realization here. <laughs> uh, anything else we'll get behind the mule? No, I'm fine. Let's get in front of it. And let's, let's get in front on. of it. Put it in the other hole, which is house where nobody lives. What a sad fucking song. Fucking sad song. It doesn't get more devastating when he's trying to talk about family that's no longer together. There's a few in his whole uh, oeuvre, uh, if uh, as you, uh, if you will. I used that word before. Okay, it's yeah, okay. Uh, I broke That <laughs> it just talks about broken homes or lost loves or lost children. Uh, there's a few of those in this one, but um, this is you know I think he 
his tastes lie within the rejects of the world, not just people, broken things. And this is, there's nothing sadder than a house where nowhere, nobody lives and there's nothing more broken. Right. Where you're just looking at something where the lights aren't on or, you know. So, right. So this is, this is probably, uh, that gets hold on as a ballad too, but this ballad is particularly like, this fits into the, the category of ballads that are like, hey, appreciate what you've got because what you've got is good and what you want is yep. not as good as what you've got now yeah i think this song very much is is that song right? yeah. yeah and the cool part is i feel like the lyrics are speculative he's not telling a story he's telling about what he thinks might have happened he's saying all right i have there's a house no one's there well maybe something happened maybe someone did somebody wrong so mm-hmm. he just says you know so it's sort of you know, he's projecting his feelings onto this house, I would say. Oh, interesting. So he's just looking at this thing that is out there in the world that exists and putting his own, like, sort of subjective, like, uh, uh, story onto it. This, Absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. At least that's what I got. I always take him as, like, a... He'd be a great spirit guide in a movie. Oh, he'd be a great ghost of any Christmas. Um, I just watched... Um, the night before that Seth Rogen movie. Oh, how was that, that last night? It was fun. All right, I liked it. And like the, they actually play off the Ghost of Christmas Past thing and this sort of spirit guide as like their weed dealer, <laughs> and it's played by Michael Shannon. Who's nice, fucking amazing. I love Michael Shannon. Yeah, he's great. Did you see Ninety Nine Homes yet? No, I just don't want to get mad when I watch something. You know, yeah, that'll get you mad. Ever the uh, the Big Short that Making a Murderer. I'm, I'm ready, but I'm also not sure I want the time to be outraged because I'm generally uh, upset about something. And I think that, like, making a murderer, like, if you if someone just told me about it, I would have gotten, like, outraged and all pissed off. But after watching it, I was more just bummed out than having vitriol. Like, okay. Fuck. Like, this Do you is, want this that? Is... I mean, I don't know if I want that. I think I'm going to watch some Portlandia. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that a lot of the time too, or I just like don't want to be bummed out or like feel anything other than happy. But like, it's good to expose yeah. yourself to that stuff. You know that. Yeah, my my twenties were full of a lot of sad foreign films because I was a film major. So it was just like a lot of. I feel like I'd hit my fill. Ha! <laughs> no pun intended. But I. Have you made that into a show yet? Hit my fill. Hit my fill. No, not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right, writing that down. Anyway, I, I I dig this song. Do you have anything that you else that you are curious about? With this? No, I just wanted to let the rest play out. It's nice. pretty. It's, it's real very pretty. pretty. I love that guitar. Um, I found myself writing that a lot. In yeah my notes that like just like saying this is pretty yeah which is I didn't expect to do that nope no one expects it from a Tom Waits song this song is this this album I think is if it's known for anything it's really loaded with beautiful melodies Um, which is funny because he he had a compilation of songs from the island years called Beautiful Maladies Mm -hmm. oh Um, I get it (laughs) that's very clever yeah because a lot of his songs a lot of his albums they go into ugly and they stay there for a while. Um, so the 
getting on to getting back to the idea of like me having this um non-perception perception of him as just like this you know rock i get i'll use the word deity you yeah. know almost infallible like you know artist um and having this really high bar that he would have to hit which is not fair to him but i still had it of course um here's here's the other way that i sort of like uh, st- like thought that out was like he if i walked into a bar right or i walked into an open mic and i saw someone on that stage you know just playing these songs you know yeah without me knowing what they were i'd be like this is incredible this is amazing yeah but because of the fact that i was pre-loaded with the fact that this was tom waits i was like it, it was underwhelming for some reason yeah you know and that is i think a a a strong distinction to make where you know these songs and this record is is great i think it's a i think it's a great record for the most part but like having that idea of him as like this you know this this i don't know this person i didn't know anything about except that they were great and then hearing this i i don't know if i was like let down is the right thing to hear is the right thing to say but just like I, I expecting more. What, well, yeah, can, you, what can you expect? You out had of a that, certain. You know? I don't. I don't really know. I, I had the same issue when I was getting into Harry Nilsson because I. I was told I had to listen to him, so I started listening. I was like, hey, whatever, who cares? But then I. Uh, I just decided I put it all on my iPod, and I'm like, fuck it. I'm gonna. I'm going for a long drive. I'm just gonna have to listen. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it snapped. Like it hit. It, it hit. But it's. I think it's just you have to get yourself open. And it's with anything. You, you know? have to clear yourself of all of this this bullshit image that's in your head of this yeah, thing. And, exactly. And that's that's truly what it was with this because the again the the first time I listened to this I was very skeptical. You know, as I am with most things, but more skeptical than I would normally be because I had uh, you know this preloaded image of what he was in my head and what this was supposed to be. Yeah. And then like hearing this and being like, this is not as weird or crazy or as life changing because it didn't change my life the first minute I heard the first God damn chord, yeah. you know, and that's what I was expecting, but I didn't have that. And once I got past that bullshit stuff, cause it is bullshit stuff that I bought, I made in my head. I grew to like appreciate and like these songs more and more. Yeah. Yeah. So cold water, cold water. I love this song. I want you to tell you, you bring your notes out <laughs> first cause you, you've done more due diligence. Than this I is like, this is such a great Delta blues song. Just these Dude is suffering. He's in the cold water. He woke up. He's got to get back to work. He's just just uncomfortable. I watched a play one time. My buddy Ben. He wrote this. Uh, he wrote this play where Act Two, Act One, these two characters they have to jump into a pool to get something. Act Two opens up with them covered in water and just shivering while this song plays. The lights come up slowly. They're just like they're angry. They're tired. They just went through a fucking ordeal and now they're covered in freezing water. And then that's where we join them. Mm. And this song was perfect because it's, you know, it ha- it's basically that. Like, this guy's talking about the situation that's getting worse and worse. And he keeps referring to the cold water because the cold water is just like that unpleasant. Why am I here? Mm-hmm. Why am I experiencing this? I hate cold water. I like the song, but I, I hate. It's just, yeah, it's that unpleasantness. That's what the song just feels like. Yeah, I, well, here's what I think that he's doing with the song. Okay. I think he's being cute. <laughs> I think he's being cute with the song. Because what is this song? Hold on. 
It's another this example is, of his wit. This is humor. a song that kids sing on the bus on the way home from a field trip, you know? Like, he's got the whole world and it's also a song he's got people, the whole wide world. That's true. It is also a song people that people would sing in a field. It's an old it's it's an it's an old rhythm. It's right. something that you would that people would sing together. It's a song that it is a song that people experience can experience as a unit. Right. Um, it, it definitely seems like a song a group of people yes. would sing. But here's where I think his his uh, he's being cute with this and cheeky about it is that this is a, a very cutesy song that has this very familiar melody that sounds like to me at least school children would sing it. But he's juxtaposing it. He's juxtaposing juxtaposing the sound of innocence because if you're talking about like spirituals even that yeah. like let slaves or people would sing in the field you know they're supposed to be uplifting you know if you're I think he's juxtaposing that with all of this bad shit that's happening he wakes up and he doesn't have any more hot water yep. there's the police waiting for him at the goddamn train station the only good thing that happens to him that seems to happen to him is there's a dog but it's an old dog that likes him I think he's juxtaposing this like youth and innocence thing with all of this bad stuff that's happening yeah. And I think that that is him being cheeky. Yeah. I could be completely wrong, but that's what I'm getting out of this. It's cheeky, but I think that's I think that's an honest representation of his point of view. I think he likes to take cute things, and he just fucking... And he's like, all right, well, also, this is honest. Oh, I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong with that. Oh, yeah, no, me I think neither. it's cool. I think, I, th- it's a co- I, I think I even wrote, this is a cool song. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I like this. I, it is cute. I would. I, it's just I was a little... Shock, because I'd hardly call any Tom Waits song cute, cute yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's uh, this song is is definitely representative of his humor and his uh, his sort of view of a shitty hangover morning. Mm-hmm. But at this point, he's not drinking. He's not doing any of that stuff. He's just getting up and driving his kids to school in a big in black, real life. You're yeah, saying. and yeah, in mm-hmm. real life, he's driving his kids to school in a big black uh, suburban and. You know, not not being noticed. He had a story on Letterman one time where he's like, uh, I, I took my kids to the music store and uh, I was uh, sitting by a piano, so I, pl- I figured I'd play a few notes and no one noticed. And then I, I went to the junkyard and I walked outside and everybody noticed me. <laughs> About because how just strange people know sure. Tom Waits, not not the people you'd think. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, this song. I mean, at face value, that's exactly what it is. It's a pretty cheeky song i think yeah i think it's cheeky i think it's him being cute but i don't think that i don't think that in that cheeky and cuteness it's disingenuous at oh, all. oh no i think that this is a testament to his to this wit and dark humor that i not dark humor but dry humor that i yeah that I hear him having about him having uh and this i didn't write this song is cool this song really grew on me is what i is what i put in I, at first, I was like, because when songs sound like camp songs to me, I'm like, what is this? Like, you know that song, These Eyes? These Eyes. It's like a fucking camp song, you know? And like, that bu- that bugs me some of the time, but this really did grow on me because it, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And I think he was using this as like a contrast to what the subject matter is. Yeah. yeah. A lot of this, though, if I may, is... It reminds me of my time in college, and the reason I identified with it so much is because I would wind up waking up in some strangers on their couch in my jacket still sitting up because I passed out from being drunk and it's freezing because it's Montclair State and they don't put the heat on. And and sort of just sort of having to live 
as a giant mess for most of college. Is that true about Montclair State? I went there when I, I went to baseball camp there when I was a kid. It depends on the dorm. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Because uh, I think they kept this in the nice ones. Yeah. Well, when I was there, they were. It was everything was under construction. Mm. But I mean, me and my friends we were all huge Tom Waits fans, and we were all we were all mostly degenerates. So his music was very much. He was sort of the patron saint of our antics. Right. Say. Him and him and Bob Dylan, you know, the, the usual suspects. Right. But see, this leads to what I was saying about him being so lionized. You just use the phrase patron saint with him, yes. you know, and so that adds to all this. Stuff. I think it's also because he never made a mis- He never made a fatal mistake in his career. Doesn't seem like he's done that. Right. He's he's sort of he waits. Tom waits years. Patient man. Patient man. Um, it's in the name. He waits years before he does a record. This one was four years after the last one. Um, and he, the next time I think he does an album that isn't based on a musical is, uh, 2003 with real gone. Cause before that he does Alice and blood money. They're, ba- they're both based on, uh, uh, adaptations of, of place. Interesting. First uh, album, at least that I have in here of, um, perhaps it's just studio, but in six years that he released, cause the previous one of this was, uh, to, was nineteen ninety three the Black Rider? Is Black that right? Rider, yes, yeah. yes, yes, six years. Because uh, then before that was Bone Machine in ninety two. He right. comes out in fits and spurts, mm-hmm. where you know he'll he'll do a, a series of things. If he has a concept in mind, he'll he'll put out a lot of Tom Waits and then disappear. I think he really likes that. Good. And you know what? I'm glad that he is at the place where he can do that. Yeah. Because a lot of times artists, at least when they're and he's not a young artist. This isn't like his third record. This is his twelfth no. studio record. Um, you know, well, they'll have to put out a record because they need to make money because they're, you know, they're people. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm glad that he he does. This is one of the things that I did get from him. He does seem like a true artist in that, and a, an artist that I I think I would appreciate because he makes the stuff on his own terms. You know, he's not forcing any. He's not. Nothing's contrived. He yeah. makes stuff when he seems like he wants to make it, which I think is great. Yeah. yeah. So, getting on to Pony, not yes. a genuine cover, unfortunately. No. No. Um, I like this song. It's I actually kinda, didn't have any notes on this. It's like a sad cowboy anthem. What of these? What, there, there are so many that I think I you could say that. That's true. I just feel like this is the one, this guy would be singing at a fire with his guitar, talking about his pony. Didn't he name it Tallulah? Isn't the pony named Tallulah? In this? I think I did like that. I didn't write that down, um, you know, it, it's not the first time he's made a song about people taking the long way home or finding their way home. And I think that's not just on its nose about someone finding their way home. I think it's about, you know, it's it's about people finding peace. You know, like he had a song, he has a song called The Fall of Troy about gun violence between children. And he, he ends every refrain with, and he'll have to find his own way home. Um, he also has a song called The Long Way Home uh, I don't think it's about finding your way home uh, At a certain point I think it's a, th- a common motif he goes back to yeah. here's, here's, Hold on, listen, listen for a second sure, Here's sure. one thing that kind of bugs me Do you hear that complimenting melody in the background yeah. that's doing like the counterpoint? Is that that should be a violin, but it's not. It's like a melodica or some kind of synth that why? But it could sound like a violin to him because that guy does not hear things correctly. And that's that's another oh, man, I guess. That's something with that's something with Tom Waits that I've 
I've grown accustomed to is the fact that he does not like utilizing mainstream or typical sounds for what he's trying to com- for his purposes. He makes stuff except for guitar. guitar. He loves a the guitar. There is an album where he forsakes all piano, which is kind of cool. But he, I mean, he loves his guitars um, and percussion. To me, to me, like putting a melodica or whatever that is in there. You know, if you know what it is, yeah, fucking tweet in, write in. Like it sounds like some kind of synth or something like that, where there should be a violin, and it seems like it's needlessly so. Like it, this song would be, perhaps I think at least much better served by a violin. But maybe he's trying, maybe he's trying to do something. Maybe he is trying to do something different, and I, I can respect yeah. that if that's the case. I never had any preconceived notions about what should be in this song. I never. I always thought it was sort of a nice compliment to the rest of it because it. it it sounds like a campfire in the desert, and this guy's just telling a sad song about his fucking. There's pony. no melodica in the desert. Nope. Everything else on but this then there's song. there's that. I like that. I like when he pulls in strange elements for his songs. That's sort of, that's kind of something that I, I always look for in his stuff because I just I, I appreciate the just the differentiation, the diversity of, of sound. Everything else sounds so traditional in this song. Every other instrument. Yeah, even the harmonica that just right yeah. is so is so you know, traditional to this, except for this one thing. And it, it's now it's so glaring to me. I don't know what it is. It's like, it's like seeing a, 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 a yellow Reese's pieces in a line of orange ones. Yeah. Like I need to get it out of there. Like get, ch- change it out for something else. And I don't know, maybe he's doing that. I'm sure he's doing that on purpose. Here's the thing that I will give to him. Nothing like this seems like it's ever ill-conceived or, or that it's, uh, everything seems like, it's there for a reason. Like yeah. it's well thought out. I, I don't know if it's all necessarily like super high concept because he doesn't always seem like that's the case. Because when I hear him talk, he always just seems like, well, that's the way we wanted to do it. By the way, he sounds just like Nick Nolte when he talks. Yeah. <laughs> just like Nick Nolte. Yes. Um, but and so I'll give him that. But that doesn't mean it can't bug me. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Um, it's just and that that's. I mean. You should listen to his earlier his stuff in the eighties because it's kind of part and parcel with what he's about. He just he just fucking tapes together instruments and just has people play them. He's always in search of a different sound and, and trying to get get to the heart of something just sideways. That's fair, but I think that what and and yes, I, I understand that this instrument interesting instrumentation is a big thing with him because there's all of this very very non-traditional percussion in a lot of his stuff and i dig that and i appreciate it but it it didn't seem like it fit in with the rest of that it seems like i bit into a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and i just tasted cilantro like it just seemed like this thing that was out of place to be out of place that's so weird just to me. Okay. Speaking of weird, <laughs> we're going to get into a guy. Uh, here we I go. I love this song. This is, oh, you do? It's not a song. Mm. It's not a song. Listen, listen. Let's, let's, play, let's play it. Let's play it. We're not going to talk at least for the first 20 seconds of this. Fine. And then we're going to let loose. Fine. What's he building in there? What the hell is he building in this? He has subscriptions to those magazines. He never waves when he goes by. He's hiding something from the rest of us. He's all to himself. I think I know why. 
took down the tire swing from the pepper tree. He has no children of his own, you see. He has no dog. All right, let's talk. Go. 1950 small town paranoia. What's he building in there? What is that? He's got these magazines just piling outside his door. He doesn't say hi. We're a community. We have a right to know what's happening. That's the character. He's, he's, he's the neighbor of the guy who's building something in his shed, and he's not talking about it. So he's, I mean, it's, it's a song about an, song. It's a spoken word piece about an outcast. That's why. What does this have to do in context to the rest of the record? Well, what, is the, what does the record have to do? What's the record say? The record has a, a sound and, and a, a sonic aesthetic that fits into the visual aesthetic of the cover where it looks like he's an extra in Tombstone yeah. of this sort of Wild West place where there's no such thing as cell phones or, or cars or anything like that. Everything is sort of rusted and made by a blacksmith, perhaps. Everything is simpler and more... Uh, quaint and confined. And if a strange guy were to show up to that town where everything's quaint and confined and build a shed where he's With building a consulting some... company in Indonesia, yeah. that <laughs> phrase does not fit into this record sure at all. Sure it does. Sure it does. There's a consulting firms in Indonesia around the time that this is probably happening. Yeah, but th- that does... Ugh, you're defending this just to fucking defend it. I'm not defending it to defend I I really do get a kick out of this because... Not saying you don't get a kick out of it. Not taking that away from you. Oh, no, 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 no. But also, I appreciate it. I get it. I understand. It reminds me of the people in my town who are just who very like if something's different. I I know. I get it. It's a twilight zone, and it's a microcosm. I mean, this is this is a microcosm of everything. When someone's why isn't he on Facebook? What's he doing online if he's not on Facebook? What's why is he only sharing Bernie memes? What what is his deal? Like this is. He's, by putting himself in the position of somebody who's judging and trying to be like, he is a, a threat to the community because he, he doesn't talk to us. I he, guess this fits into this sort of outcast I mean, Hold On is about an outcast. It's about, a, a, it's about two outcasts with oop, each other. Cold Water is about a guy who's in trouble because he's got an old dog. Okay. Do you play video games at all? Yes. You do? Once in a while, yes. Like, what was the last video game? Fallout. Fallout 4? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Uh, I was up for some... I wanted. To, I didn't have any plans last night, right? And I was like lo- I was like texting people and seeing if anybody was doing anything. Nobody was fucking doing anything, or at least they didn't want to tell Thursday me. Thursday's the new Friday. So, oh God, I was out on Thursday reading a book in a bar, and someone fucking said that, and I wanted to fucking kill myself. Why are you reading a book at a bar? Because I can't read it at home, <laughs> because I have Netflix, and I have my Plex, Fair and enough. all, and I have Fair to enough. clean shit at home. It is easier for me to read at a place with a ton of people talking and noise than it is when I can sit down and be like, oh, I should fold that or I should clean this or something like that. I, I, I can't. Anyway, all right. So last night, I'm like, you know what? I've been hearing and seeing a lot about this game Fallout 4. You know, I don't play video games that much, but, you know, let me get into this. So okay. I looked on, do you know what Steam is? Yes. I looked on Steam for it, and I was like, oh, there it is. It's 60 bucks. Oh, you know what? Here's uh, Bioshock Infinite, and this is only 30 bucks. And I liked the aesthetic of the Bioshocks. I never really played them, but they always looked really cool to me. Yeah. And so I downloaded Bioshock Infinite, and I started playing that. And I was like, this is a fun game. So I'm playing Bioshock Infinite right now, okay? You play video games. Did you play, like, Resident Evil and stuff oh, like yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Great. Again, close your eyes. You don't actually have to do that. But think about this as like I was, I paused Bioshock Infinite, right? To to 
have my coffee and eat a little cereal and then listen to this record. And then all of a sudden I heard this. Building in the this sounds like a fucking cutscene to a video game. Everything about it, the, the radioness of his voice, what yeah. he's saying, because it's all of this exposition, but he's only talking to himself. You know, he's giving this, he's giving this self, this exposition to himself, and it's, it's just, and it has all of this other like stuff going on to it. He's reaching out into video game territory with this. This is, he's not, he's not just making music. He's making. He's, no he's telling a story right here, and it can be glommed onto a movie, a video no game. Dog. It's, I think it's it's universal enough. No that's pretty cool. I'm gonna, I'm, I will be dying. the defender of Tom Waits for totally the evening. But I, I you, that's that's what you're here to do, and yeah. that's you're not even the defender, but here to possibly even just explain things yeah. that I don't get. But I think a better person to explain himself would be Tom himself. Oh, you have it. I have it. So awesome! I can't wait to hear what we're gonna listen to right now. In support of this uh, record that he put out in 1999, he apparently went out on a big tour, and he hadn't been on a proper tour uh, for, like, years before he went out on this tour. And to also promote this, he did a VH1 Storyteller. And so, you know, VH1 Storytellers, I think we're all hip to yeah. what that is. And he hopefully. hates tours, by the way. This guy Does he? That never... seems weird. He, 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 doesn't, he seems like a dude that, like, music's like a live he thing. He does Letterman, and he does, like, school uh, charities. Does he still do Letterman? No. But no? he was there, like, second to last episode. He was talking was. to George Clooney, who was handcuffed to Letterman. The Clune Dog! <laughs> and he also revealed a new song called Take One Last Look. How was it? Great. It was a very... It was very Tom Waitsian. Tom Waitsian? Okay. Yeah. So here's the story of what's he building. Straight from the mule's mouth. When I was a kid, um, I had a neighbor... That we all wondered about. But everybody has a neighbor that they wonder about. And then you grow up and you're the neighbor. <laughs> well, see, uh, his name was Mr. Stitcher and... Uh, we used to skateboard by his house real loud all the time. And his, uh, his wife used to look at us disdainfully and Stitcher would stick his head out the window and shake his fist and say things like, we'll get you, we'll get you. And we would repeat other things that are unrepeatable to Stitcher. And... Um, Eventually, what happened was Stitcher died, and uh, everyone said that we killed him with our skateboards. <laughs> I don't believe that, but I did believe it when I was a kid. Anyway, this is the neighbor that um, we all become. So that's his explanation of it, but you know, just listening to this record and then all of a sudden this track coming on, I was at first, because I, I really thought my video game had just turned on by itself, truly, and then when I realized it was this, I was like, that makes sense. It also took me a few listens to realize that there was a rhyming pattern to it, which I didn't realize at yeah. first. Um, but then at the two minute, and I got it, I was like, oh, this is a spoken word track. And But then the two minutes, I was just like, what the fuck am I listening to? And so 
on my like fourth or fifth listen now to this record, which is what I'm on now. Like it went from, and this is an interesting like sort of progression to me of like listening to this record for the first time. It went from like being not impressed to realizing, no, these are great songs and they're really cool to now getting into the minutia of them and like starting to nitpick and be like, I don't like this because this seems out of place to me and I don't like like that melodica or whatever it was and now this track. Yeah. He always has a spoken word piece. Is that so? He Like once in a while he'll have one. Um, he has this one called Frank's Wild Years on Swordfish Trombones that's basically just him telling a story about a guy who was tired of living in suburbia. Um, he has one on... Um, he has a few. I mean, that compilation uh, Ballers or Orphans, Ballers, Brawlers, and Bastards has tons of them from him because um, I just think he he likes weaving stories with music but I think he sometimes Certainly. he's just got to put it all down and be like let's just do this let's just tell I'm just going to tell you a story I, I respect it I don't think it's bad necessarily yeah. I'm just like it's just part of, I think that's just part of what he does because uh, yeah. he himself he's a good actor so I think he's actually just, this is a character he's inhabiting for a time. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Do you think that when he's like performing and he's being Tom Waits, like musician, do you think he's different like at home and in person, like with his kids and stuff? I, I think he's just like a bewildered old guy because his kids are definitely more, I mean, he seems in, in all the interviews, he's just sort of playing the role of a, of, of a father who's there, who's, who's present for his kids. I think that's why he also hates touring because he likes living with his with his family. He likes his family because I think he, you know, he had a pretty decent relationship with his folks too. So I think he's just, you know, he's I think he's trying to live on the edge of not being quite in suburbia, Mm -hmm. and 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 being the guy that has a job and kids and a wife. But he has all that. But he's also Tom Waits. Oh, so I think he's yeah. I can see that living on the edge. The the Aerosmith special. Essentially, essentially. Um, so what did I write about this song Black Market Baby it's a cool title oh yeah she's a diamond that wants to stay cold whiskey from a teacup I love it I think the instrumentation on this is great oh yeah I think it's this this one they're going on all cylinders at least with just the composition when it comes to you know him doing different things like this is an example a great example i think of where it works so well to me yeah these deep bells that are playing yeah. in the background, I think that's my favorite part of this. Yeah. yeah you gotta hear a town without cheer. They had they basically use dishes. Have you ever seen him live? No, that guy this guy never goes live, and if he does, he doesn't fucking tell anybody. Like that, this is my dream concert. How does does he does he just do stripped down versions of these or does he have like he all of this percussion and shit out there? I think he has a band. I've heard live versions. He did a live cover of Papa's Got a Brown New Bag, and he uses mostly bongos. I don't know. I don't know if maybe he goes out there with a certain amount of instruments and decides that this is what he's going to use on the day. I I don't. I, I've never seen him live, but I 
I think he, it really depends on the level of tour. Like, big time, he uses a full band. Um, but, but does I, he bring out all of the stuff that's making all of these sounds, or it's like a... Because, um, like, I don't... I think he, that's mostly, like, recording studio stuff. Right, so, okay. He doesn't bring out, like, a whole orchestra with him. No. He probably brings a, a smaller set of people, not like a whole thing. This song has... <laughs> she checked in with the president and ran up quite a bill. Ooh, is he talking about Monica Lewinsky? Oh, come on. Yeah, maybe. Um, no. He's just, he's talking about his type of girl. It's a troublemaker. Black market baby. She, she's a diamond who wants to stay cold. Diamond who, she thinks, she doesn't think she's better. She doesn't want to be. I think she's happy to be. Yeah, so just women with low self-esteem. Yeah. Well, I mean, his, his relationship with Kathleen... I always look for his from telling stories about her in his songs. When they met, she was an executive. I think she was a movie executive. She was a story editor. Yeah, that's what I read. Or something. She did something. But they, when they got together, she would drive him everywhere, mm-hmm. or she would she would make him take weird turns because she'd try to get him lost. Like she just would get into trouble with him. And I think it, it, months later they got married. Yeah. Literally months in yeah. a Vegas chapel at like 1 a.m. They <clears> met <throat> at a New Year's Eve party. Yeah. And then he was like, I'm going to New York and I'm never coming back to L.A. And then he went back to L.A. Of course. You can't, you he, can't leave. He was born there. And then he got an office uh, apparently down in the hall from her. And that's how that started. Yeah. I think. And it was quick. It, like they. Yeah. He realized that she was his, his wife and that was it. Like, And she realized too. And they're a team. It's great. Like it's it's what you it's what everybody wants. His right? wife. His wife. But uh, yeah, it's. I think this song says some something about that. But I think it also, you know, says something. It's the same. It's the same story about any of those characters he talks about. Who they they'll never ascend to what I mean, society or what they're supposed to be. The level that they could be seen at this is you know she's not going to be a diamond she doesn't want to right she doesn't want to be a diamond that's and that and you know what the thing is i think that our like popular culture right now is kind of flooded with a lot of these like uh, like culturally subversive anti-heroes you yeah know? but this is 1999 so i could see that being a sort of uh vanguard thing for yeah. that time certainly speaking of our society i think the Ooh. next track is very telling eyeball kid yeah let's get into it Okay, my one note for this is that I like this song because he's putting a lot of energy into his vocals, which oh, yeah. he doesn't do for all the songs. No, no, he's he's pretty pretty relaxed for the for a lot of this. His birthday, by the way. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. December the 7th, 1949. 
basically about celebrity. Even then, this is 1999. He's talking about this family that raises an eyeball to be a fucking star for Hollywood. There's no reason. To, there's no reason for him. He's an eyeball. But also at the same time, because he's a fan of, you know, the sideshows. This is something that was happening for years. When you like, come into this tent, look at this talking eyeball. You know, like. It speaks to that, but it's also about, I want to be a celebrity. I'm an eyeball. I deserve to be a celebrity, right? He's And he's from the point of view of his brother, who is also his bodyguard, who's trying to make him famous because his family wants a star. You know, this is essentially, it's foretelling the Kardashians. Uh, but... Seriously. Why does he want to perform in Carnegie Hall? Because he wants to be famous. This is a great avant-garde blues song. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a blues song, but this is a blues song that sounds like no other blues song. At least that I know of. Oh, yeah. Because everything is just percussion on this. Yeah. Right? There's a trumpet there. Yeah, there's shouting. There's the... It's most... It sounds... And there's a... There's a low string right there. It sounds like mostly percussion, though, and then it's all just him, uh, which is cool. Yeah. Picture in a frame. Yeah. Track 11. This is a fucking Hallmark song. It's it's basically, it's a Louis Armstrong. This is a nice piano intro. I'm, yes. This song sounds like Louis Armstrong. And his piano intros are very similar to each other. He only knows a few chords, and he, he, he has very specific chord progression that he always sort of follows. Come up. Um, and you can almost hear it and come on in later tracks. Is this in C-sharp major, <laughs> which means just the white keys? I think so. Maybe not. It sounds like it is almost. I don't have perfect pitch, but that's okay. You could hear anybody. You could hear Bing Crosby. You could hear Dean Martin singing the song. Yeah, it's a it's, crooner. It is absolutely, and that's what he grew up as a fan of. He was um, he wasn't a fan of the '60s style. He was a fan of Bing Crosby. You know, he he was an old man when he was a young kid. He he had a cane. He had a long coat. He, he wanted to be an old man when he was young. And so that was something that always followed him in his in his uh, travels, I guess. It was his different his albums. And it's just like this song is another one about sort of enduring love. He puts a picture in her frame. And the next lyrics are my favorite. One of my favorite Tom Waits Lines. Alright, let's hear it. I wanna love you till wheels come off. Oh, yeah. Louis Armstrong in there. So like and then you got all this brass that comes in. Or yeah. there's a woodwind in there, two saxophones, woodwind. Uh, 
Yeah, this is uh, uh, yeah, this is a lovely song. That's what I wrote about this. This yeah. is a lovely song. That's it. And yeah. you don't really see too much of that. I mean, he writes a, he writes some love songs here and there, but this album I think is very like loaded with this sort of sincerity. Um, and there's more to come, you know. Uh, uh, Take it with me when I go, Georgia Lee. Um, a lot of these are just sort of. I mean, Georgia Lee is not a love song, but you know what I mean. It's he's he's coming from a different place than you're gonna hear from a lot of other albums. You'll you might hear uh, similar from a lot of this because you know Rolling Stone only gave this two three stars I think because they, saw they said it was more of the same. Yeah. But a lot of folks because a lot of more ardent Tom Waits fans can spot the differences and people can appreciate it for what it is. It's, it's essentially a Tom Waits blueprint of his brain. This one. Right. Uh, or at least where he is at this time. Okay. We're gonna go to Chocolate Jesus. Let's do it. This you have to see this live. Um, so do you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> but when he when he did this on Letterman, it's great because he has a whole preface. How it, he um, it's an immaculate. He talks about how it's it's a uh, an immaculate convection confection. That's uh, a great name. Yeah, how he his penance is he puts a little Chocolate Jesus in his mouth. <laughs> Chocolate Jesus. Yeah. It's a little little candy. That's how it grew on him. about how somebody worships Jesus. It's a little different than other people. You know, it's it's about... It's funny because he's, he's talking about being fulfilled by it because it's a candy. And also that's how he celebrates Jesus by eating... It's kind of... It's a, it's a joke and a play on the body of Christ. You know, in a fun way. This is a cute one. I think this is a cute one. If you're going to... If, uh, use that word. Yeah, we're, we're gonna use it. Is this all? Is is all of that stuff just stuff you you came up with on your own? No, this is him. His intro on the Letterman, uh, the, his guest spot on Letterman, on the Letterman. On the Letterman. When he um he talks about it, he has a whole intro, and it's sort of it's a means of getting the crowd into it because he's performing for network TV. Right. But it's also a means of getting him into this character he's playing on stage. Around during the music break, he starts doing a dance, which is mostly just uh, he's kicking up sand and doing a strange walk dance. I don't quite understand. Well, here's what he says about it. Oh yeah. On the guitar tonight and banjo, Smokey Ormel. song um it was inspired by my father-in-law um see he's from new jersey and he um every now and then he sends me these get rich quick things and um he clips them out of the paper or whatever 
this one was fascinating because it was um, it was a, a candy item, and it was uh, they were called testaments. And uh, <laughs> what happens if it's Sunday and you, you you're not really uh, you're not ready for church? Have a testament. <laughs> Just a little, and they're individually wrapped for freshness. And, uh, and then you flip on one side. There's a cross, and then you flip it over, and there's a little uh, Bible uh, inscription on the thing, which I thought was really charming. <laughs> we took it a step further, and we said, "Well, if these things go over big, you know what's coming: the chocolate Jesus." just went out with it. And, uh, so I don't know. They may be coming to your town. <laughs> Watch out for it. Yeah. So at least that's what he says during the VH1 storytellers about oh, this song. Chocolate Jesus is personally what I call Kanye West. Uh, that's what I like to think of him as. Fair enough. I mean, I he is fifty percent more influential than a, than a lot of interesting Pablo people. Picasso. Pablo Picasso. Pablo. What was the other Pablo he used? Oh, oh my God! I, I can't. Escobar. Stand. Pablo Escobar. Fucking that's right. Escobar. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, Ryan Reynolds some, just did a Deadpool parody of that. Oh, he did. That's it's cool. great. He did. He did. I think three percent more influential than Wolverine. <laughs> I think uh, I, f- I forgot a certain percentage more influential than than Judas Iscariot. Like that's just, right because he referenced um oh god this like it wasn't Saint Peter it was someone else so. some, he's he's the guy that guy really I can't stand that guy anymore. Kendrick Lamar is exactly what Kanye West wants to be <sighs> like an actually influential talented hardworking guy Kanye West just wants what he has to work for and he has to work by putting together a good he does good albums but I mean only when he has to do one <sighs> yeah. He's 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 really just lazy, I think. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I, he seems real. Whine. He seems so whiny to me, and that's what I don't like about him. Anyway, he's a whiner. Speaking of whiny, we're gonna get to Georgia Lee. Yes, those this rhyme. is uh, Tom Waits. He loves children. I've realized this. He 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 loves singing songs about how uh, you know we should protect them. Okay. And how we should be watching over them. And why aren't they? protected and why do they have to die and that happens in a few there's a little rain uh from from bone machine which is kind of like georgia lee it's a, it's it's of the same style um i think when you when you just decide to if you decide to yeah. go on a, a path of discovering more tom waits you're going to find that this this album as i've said before is kind of a blueprint of a lot of stuff he's done before but it's also it's different it's it's more of a it's telling of what where he's up to now mm-hmm. it's kind of it's the same thing with any artist right but he definitely has very marked templates of certain songs. And this is the same as A Little Rain or... I think the thing Fall that Troy. turns me off, I'm going to look more into him. Okay. But the fact that you had to phrase it, not that you had to, but you did phrase it subconsciously as the, the path to discovery of Tom Waits. It just sounds so fucking religious to me. <laughs> like, it is. It's true. In a little like, bit. Yeah. In a little bit. I mean, like... I'm trying to think who I, I discovered would... him at a time when I was really, really down on my luck and lost. And it, it, a lot of his stuff sort of, it, it, he, it sort of picked me up and made me realize, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not that alone. I'm, there's other, there's people who have it way worse off, but also it's okay. Man, and you hate emo music? That's a weird thing, dude. I know. Well, I hate the marketing. Georgia Lee. <laughs> well, cool. 
I'm gonna pause it right there because yeah. this song is a hymn. Even yeah. even oh, with that I, oh, little yeah, yeah, beginning yeah. of like the uh, not reprise, but like it just sounds like a and then everyone in church starts to sing. Yep, that you know? note. It's that note it ends on where it's it's just the ending of the hook, you know? Yeah. Because like here's the here's the melody and then it comes back later. I'm gonna start that again. But like this song is a hymn. It sounds like a hymn. Absolutely. That's what I have down here. Cold was the night and hard was the ground. They found her in a small grove of trees. And lonesome was the place where Georgia was found. She's too young to be out. I wasn't good watching. Like this sounds like a hymn to me because yeah. this sounds like you can hear like an entire congregation singing this. But also, oh, yeah. this song this song borrows some melody lines from Amazing Grace. Was blind, but now I see. Oh yeah, but also a lot of his songs come from uh, Auld Lang Syne, and this kind of does as well. Should old like. It has almost the same chord progression, but he uses a lot of Auld Lang Syne. He uses a lot of old, classic progressions. You could say Amazing Grace is in there, too. Um, I think with with this song, it's his take on a hymn. But instead of talking about Jesus protects everyone or God loves all the things, he's basically inverting it and being like, Why, where was God when this girl was murdered or taken? You know, yeah, yeah, and that's a lot of his songs about murder is, or, or kids or things like that, are mostly just mourning. It's never looking for answers. This is the first one where it kind of is, but it's it's almost mocking the the traditional hymn. I think it is. I think you're right with that. This is another. I I guess you could still use the term tongue in cheek, even though it's not a, like a cutesy tongue in cheek. Yeah. This is a. He's using irony in a. Much more serious one. Yes, yeah. That's fair, that's fair. Gotta move things along a little yes, bit. We, we do. We Filipino have... box spring hog, which this totally one. sounds like a song about a Filipino whore. Right? Like someone that takes up the whole bed. Demon Tom Waits. The first, the first note I had about the song that I wrote when I heard this, I was like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, yeah. I mean, this calls back to his older, harder stuff, but also this is a snapshot of his family. Um, at some point, he references Kathleen in her bra. You'll hear it. But, so this song Stop. is incredibly cool. Yes. But I fucking can't stand these goddamn scratches in it because they're like the very, they're almost like sampled record scratches. Like someone going, Where's that? The recovery room was actually a bar in California that, that he went to a few times. And it's, it's basically the 
definition of an old man, dingy, post-apocalyptic looking bar. It's since been decon- you know, demolished and closed, unfortunately, but that's a real place. Yeah. Yeah. I've never quite noticed the, the turntable-y... It's so, like, basic. Yeah. It's like, who was doing this in 1999? Linkin Park was doing this. Why is Tom Waits doing this in 1999? <laughs> that's fair. It's his first foray into it, but that, that and that's as far as it gets. No, it's not. It's not. Because then I fucking looked it up. You should see the way my arms are moving. This DJ is on tracks 8, 9, 10, and 14. But you don't quite hear that, do you? But he's on four tracks. He's on four tracks. DJ. This is this is as far as it gets to the to the to the yeah. traditional turntableism. Turntable, romantic comedy, somebody getting hit in the nuts trailer. You know, whenever they do the record scratch. Um, but this is I mean this song it, it almost I don't want to say it calls for it, but if you're going to have a song that's going to have the turntable scratch, it's going to be this one. This is yeah, a dirty... I guess. This is a like dirty, dank song about him sitting at a bar shirtless with his dog and his wife sitting next to him with, her, with a, only her bra. Everything about this song is cool. It's about cooking a pig on a goddamn fucking fire. Yeah. But this is another example of just like one thing that's like why is this in here this is the melodica in the other fucking track this is this is that speak spoken word track in this record there's always just without the fucking thing with this record there's just like you're gonna find that a lot so about Tom things. Waits there's is like that one thing that's like why is this in here that's like kind of his that's where you know he, he winks at the camera I would say if you were a filmmaker where it's like all right why why is there a monkey teaching Shia LaBeouf how to how to swing from from vines you know like there's Ooh, that don't get me started on there. that movie no don't get me started because i will defend that movie okay fine. yeah well next, i will defend that, that different episode. better better than uh uh temple of doom but yeah that is a different episode no anyway no, 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 we, no, no, no. okay already yeah we wanted to take it with me <laughs> let's not take it with it. me is great when i was a film student making derivative shit and i had my idea for a movie this was going to be the death scene of my main character this song i love this song because it's basically it's it's somebody knowing they're at the end and choosing the images that they want to take with them when they go of course but also choosing what matters to them you know he's he's picking very very specific things that he's going to take or very specific things that have meaning to him and that's sort of you know it's to me, that matters more than the the grand gestures of love you see in other or hear in other songs. Okay. Um, and, cool. I'm take it with me when I go. Far, far away. Train whistle blows. Wherever you're going, where. So he's not growly in this. No, this is a nice. This is yeah. another like really very nice ballad that's yeah. on this record. Um, it almost harkens back to his early, early stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, in his first album he has a song called Martha, about a man reconnecting with his old love fifty years later, or forty, at some point. You know, mm-hmm. a long distance. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this is sort of the same vocal vocalization and it's sparse it's just him 
piano and a bass. Yeah, yeah. the same thing with Martha almost. It's got, a, you know, I think it has some strings. Uh-huh. But this is. I mean, at least in terms of the other stuff. So yeah. You, you when you were making your derivative stuff when you were a film. It was a horror student. comedy. Well, <laughs> so you wouldn't put this in the the, the, the derivative stuff you're doing now. Uh, I'm not doing any. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Uh, Come in, Jack Fiction. I suppose is a little derivative. Um, I'm kidding. Little... I'm kidding. No, I wouldn't, because I I have friends that make music, and also I just I think this song is just is better. Than a cheesy horror movie, at least now, ten years after the fact, I think it's this is this is deserving of something better than some fucking student film. Yeah, but how would you know back then? How would I know? I don't know. I wouldn't. You thought you were doing something great. I thought I was. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I think I think you know. That's what I think. Even now, like you'll make something and you'll think it. Hopefully, you'll think it's great, and then twenty years later, you'll be like, "Oh my god, <laughs> you believe I was making that?" Yeah, there's some things I did last year that I'm like, "Why?" Um, have you what, have you ever made something, you know, in your past? Of course, when you were younger, because that's how time works. Mm-hmm. That you still look on now, and you're like, "That was great!" Like I made that, I thought it was great, and it's still great. Do you have that with anything? Um, I have I have performances that I think were pretty great. Um, like on the spot performances, but like I, I guess like <laughs> my high school performance of the Pharaoh and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I think I was firing on all cylinders because the the five weeks from when I got cast to when we did it I was running on treadmills I was not drinking any soda I was only drinking water I was eating healthy I lost like 15 pounds because when you're 17 you can do that easily um, and I was studying Elvis every night and when I finally went up and did it I was it was it was magic to me because I don't know what I was doing. I was nervous. I had to pee. I was, I was in the same mindset of, I think, probably the first Ed Sullivan appearance. I, I just didn't because it was, it was a very outlandish thing. I mean, I was, it was my also my junior year of high school, so I really don't have the perspective at that time. But looking back, I worked, I worked really hard and got there for that. So you think if you would have just seen, if you watch that performance now, without the context of that yeah. being you, you would have been like, that kid's doing something great. Yeah. If, if, I, if I went to a high school and I saw, if I saw me mm-hmm. without knowing it was me somehow. Right. You just saw this performance. I'd be like, yeah. someone did that. All right. Um, and there, there's a few performances here or there or a few times when I've done things where I think everybody has that. And I think it's healthy. I think you should be looking out there for that moment where you're like proud of yourself. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm, I hope that people have that. I hope yeah. people are, first of all, I hope people are making things, let alone making yes. things that they think are great and all that stuff. But I think it's an interesting thing that when you're, you know, a creative or a performer, you know, and you make stuff when you're younger and you look back on it and like, you know, you have a podcast that's pretty much about this people making yes. things and then kind of being embarrassed about them later because they're so over dramatic or over whatever. But like being able to still like, I think that there are those outliers and I don't think you have to be necessarily be like someone who's completely narcissistic or an egotist to like see something you made when you were younger and you're like, this is a great thing. But I'm always curious about that. Like, oh yeah, this, cause I have some things that I'm still very, very proud of. Like, oh yeah, like this is great. This was, this is a great thing that I did and I made and I'm like, to this day, I'm still happy I did this, you know? Uh, And I'm, I don't know. I'm always interested about that stuff because so much of the shit that we made is, 
you know, laughable it's, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's also in the ether now because no one's really do- no one documented things as fervently as they are as they do now. Sure, um, I, I guess it depends on the th- what your medium that you're working true. in. Yeah, 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 true, true. Yeah, um, I mean, Pharaoh exists on video somewhere. I don't know where. Someone's someone's dad's JVC guy. He got it. Nobody beats yeah. the Wiz. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, on some kind of uh, fuck. What was the tape that they used? Oh, it was SVHS. Is also is like the SVHS. special one, right? There's another one I'm thinking of, like specifically. Oh. There's like the there's mini mini DV Super Eight, maybe that's Super what it Eight, is. not as Super before, mini, before DV. mini Yeah, yeah it was like, it was like the chubbier small ones. Yeah, I right. I recorded a whole thing of interviews with celebrities on that at a at a horror convention, and then I I lost the means to do it, like to actually edit because the it, it was just obsolete after a while. What do you still have those tapes? I'm, I've, Who did I've you been interview? Uh, I interviewed Ted Raimi. Okay, I interviewed Kane Hodder. Um, just all like horror movie celebrities. That's okay. Was my fir- spit them out. Yeah, it was my first chiller theater. Uh, I think Brad Dourif. Um, There's a lot of folks. J- Zachary. How did you do? Did you just set up in a corner? Did no, you I was just a high table? school student being like, "Hey, I got a, I got a public access TV show. You want to, you want to, you want to ask, you know, talk That's about cool, things." Man. And then we like, oh, Forrest J. Ackerman. We he showed me his fucking Bell Lugosi's oh. Dracula ring. He showed me his dick, <laughs> and, and and Bell Lugosi's Dracula ring was at the base, and I felt so bad. It was so thin. Um, no, he uh, he showed me like all the props, all the rings he had, and just oh, it was it was great. But unfortunately, it all it all belongs exists in my buddy's basement, and I'm sure he's taped over it because he he sort of. What's he gonna? T- oh, I guess back in the day, when yeah. He to use that. Unfortunate. Wow, that's 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 a shame to think that all of that stuff was taped taped over. Probably with him like being like, I wonder what it looks like when I jerk off. You know, probably. <laughs> uh, I he's dead for a fact. I know that he recorded himself fucking some broad over a film we made. Fucking some broad. Some broad. Some broad. Uh, a human being. A human. A being. female who he who was attracted to him and he her and. They had sex and he fit you. Within the context of that video, though, it was just some broad. We're not saying that this is how we look at all women whatsoever. No, not at all. But for that video, if she had a uh, credit on IMDb, she would just be some, some broad, broad. Dot, 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 some broad. Some broad. Um, yeah, that would, be, that would be her character as well as her name. <laughs> Indeed. So on that note, we're going to get to this beautiful oh, song this to is end it. My fucking favorite. Actually, I would have liked to have begun this podcast with this. Oh, you but fucked up. I fucked up, and also Big in Japan is a good opener. Yes, this is earned. So I think we should we should get to you it. Get into it. Okay. This is called what? Come on up to the house. Again, similar chord progression to a lot of what he does, but the context of this song, it's outstanding. I love it. Well, the moon is broken and the sky is cracked. Come on. To the house The only things that you can see Is all that you lack Are you listening? Are you paying attention to these fucking lyrics? Because this is You're getting your ass kicked in life You're having a hard time You're not feeling so good about yourself You might have You might have Looked back on something you've done And not been so pleased Doesn't matter Come on up to the house All your friends are here I've said that come down from the cross where you could lose the wood to not just my girlfriend but my friends before because everybody he's speaking to everybody who's ever felt some sort of sad adversity a moment where they can't go anymore 
I love that. This sounds like just to me. This this sounds like a. It sounds like a very traditional American song. Yeah, like it's not jingoistic about it. No, it's not. It's, not it's actually about defeat and just sort of commiserating. Uh, it's just It's for everybody who's been kicked While they're down There's a place for you Come up to the house This be okay. song and three ninjas Are things for you For yeah, exactly. anyone who's kicked while you're down So exactly. to I wrap up the the, With the reception of this uh, It's charted in 14 countries It debuted at number 30 on the Billboard 200 It debuted at number 1 on Norway's album chart. They Good fucking t- love him in Norway. Hey, He's bigger in Norway. He should have That's, fucking wrote that. That should have been the sequel. Um, certified gold in Canada in July 2001. Uh, he won the Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Album at the 42nd Grammy yep. Awards. And he was nominated for Best Male Rock Vocal. Do you know who I he lost so. to? Oh, no, uh, he was. Do you know uh, who he lost to? Who? This was 99, I think. Was right? it Springsteen? No. Better. Better than Springsteen. Oh, okay. I think Springsteen times 1,000. Bob Dylan? Times, Bob Dylan times a million. All right, just tell me. Lenny Kravitz for his vocal work on American Woman. No, fuck you, Lenny the, Kravitz. He lost the male fuck vocal you and for your that. Goddamn Hunger Games. Uh, oh, he's greatest. He's in fine in, in the Hunger Games. He's perfectly fine. He's great in that. But I get, I get your, uh, oh, your anger. There's so many different types of Tom Waits in this album, but a very, but it, he he focuses very hard on the ballads. And being very sincere, which is not a lot of what you see later on and, and before this. I th- this is a very unique album because it, it basically it, it it sort of unravels and shows Tom Waits at exactly where he is, and it's it's sort of what you would get from his other stuff, but it's more sincere. Mm-hmm. So I think it has it has a very specific place in his uh, in his discography. Um, it's not as most cohesive. I don't think. Okay. I think Bone Machine is probably his most cohesive. Okay. Um, I would. I, I think his most wild or his his trilogy of Swordfish Trombones, Rain Dogs, and Frank's Wild Years. Um, and as we go on, uh, Alice and Blood Money and Real Gone are are all great. But the, I don't. This is this is an eighteen track epic. This is. I would say this is uh, a blonde on blonde for him. Like it's. I wouldn't say it's his best, but it's the most. It's a very iconic album for him. Okay. Because he, he sort of burst onto the scene and one, you know, got a lot of notice from this. But he's been going burst for a while. onto the scene. Yeah, this was well, his he always burst, record. Yeah, but he bursts onto the scene every time because he disappears. There's no fanfare when he releases an album. Mm-hmm. When he re- well, there is because when people realize he's releasing an album, they fucking lose their minds. But no one knows what he's that he's making them. Right. It's the same way that sort of that that Bowie kind of operated towards the end. When that he would just release stuff. He just released something, and you'd be like, "What are you doing?" So, there were two there were two reviews that kind of like struck that caught my eye about this this record. All right, one of them, and they they're kind of from opposing sides. One of them is from Pitchfork, and it's by Zach Hooker. Then this is from April twenty seventh, nineteen ninety nine, and uh, month before episode one, huh? Yeah. All right. Um, and so this, what he says here, kind of works with my my sort of belief about a lot of artist stuff especially beloved artists and their new stuff so this is what he says uh and he's he's a zach hooker is a, a with this review at least a big weights apologist okay so he says it's true that this is not rain dogs sword swordfish 
Swordfish from Bones, excuse me, Swordfish from Bones, or even Frank's Wild Ears. But it is Tom Waits's fault that people are so hung up on those. But is it Tom Waits's fault that people are so hung up on those particular albums? No. Look, you've got two options here. You can either continue to bolster your non-existent street cred by dissing new Tom Waits in favor of old Tom Waits, or you can give it up, admit that it's all great, and increase your own personal enjoyment. The, <laughs> the choice seems like a no-brainer to me. All right, me. dude. I like him. So this is my this is my whole thing with uh, people that are like, oh, their old stuff's better. The last episode, we ha- we did a Weezer record, Weezer's only record with Epitaph, and I think which Weezer... One, which one was that? Hurley. So, oh yeah, released on Epitaph. Their only okay. record released on Epitaph to this date. Maybe we'll do more. But Weezer, I think, at least with our you feel about that? generation, that's okay. I cool. liked it. I didn't like it at first, uh, but then upon closer listen, which I do with all of these, obviously, I liked it a lot. Actually, there's a lot of okay. really good stuff on there, and I think the the thing with with Weezer is like the perfect example of a band that is fucking burdened by their first two amazing records yeah where it's like they they were so great and i think that the problem is that whenever someone rivers cuomo has a very distinctive voice and when you hear his voice you automatically think of songs from those first two records and it's hard for him to move for them to do anything more yes but the, there's a difference rivers cuomo and weezer came about at a time when a, a certain generation needed to hear Weezer and they did and so it's it's different Tom Waits has a longer career that spans longer than that and he wasn't speaking to any sort of maybe he was speaking to specific careers but not at the time in which he released those albums when people find Tom Waits they they gravitate towards a specific time in his life that they identify with Weezer it was immediate the blue album took off and then the next one was the green album right or was it was Pinkerton I think Pinkerton Pinkerton was great I fucking Pink love. Pinkerton and Blue Album are the ones that everyone yeah. judges. The, them the Green Album is people. people that uh, was a popular hit because that had hash pipe, but people yes. didn't like that as much. Yeah, I under, I, I was never really a big Weezer fan, but I, I knew the Blue and the and, and Pinkerton uh, uh, very very well because right because yeah. they were the Blue Album and Pinkerton exactly. But here's the thing, and I'm not I'm not saying that Tom Waits and Weezer are analogous. I'm just saying that this argument that this dude has for people who are apparently, I, I guess that within the Tom Waits fan subculture, there are people that are like, oh, it's not his old shit, which every artist fucking gets or anyone fucking gets. Yeah. And the idea of it is, is for me at least, good. If I wanted to listen to their old shit, Just, I would listen to their fucking exactly. old shit. Otherwise, they're going to become a goddamn legacy act and they're not going to explore. Who I'm wants glad that? they're exploring and doing new things. Uh, well, unfortunately, I think the culture is that everyone says they want that, but when they actually get it, it's not what they want. I will bring up... Okay, so I am a huge uh, emo and pop punk apologist. I'm super into that stuff for my own reasons. Right, and it's not for everyone. I get it. It's cool. Tom Waits isn't for everyone either, but you know what? Fall Out Boy is for me, and they were for me when they were when I was a young kid and they were just a, a regular pop punk band and now that they're pop stars, some of their stuff still is for me, but it's not the same as their older stuff and they get shit on all over for that. And you know what? I don't think their older their newer stuff is amazing or great, but I get that they're trying to do new things and I respect that as as them as artists for doing that, you know? And I'm just globbing onto them because they're a, they're a, an example that I always go to for that because they're a, a good example of a band that had a sound and now has a completely different sound. Because like, 
aside from like wanting to please their fan base, they're still trying to do shit as artists. And you could say, yeah, yeah, they're big time fucking island records making a million dollar stuff. They're not really artists. They're just selling records. No, they're still fucking people. Yeah. You know, like, like regardless of whatever you want to glob onto them or say that they're just social media accounts like saying shit. No, they're still people that have to make stuff. You know, they still write their own stuff. Maybe they have other people that come in. I don't know. But like they still, for the most part, play their own shit and make their own stuff. And they want to do new things just as any fucking you're a creative dude you get you you work on a project you're like this is fucking awesome and then you're like oh now i'm tired of this i want to do something else this is what happens to creative people and so i'm so with this dude saying this about tom waits and so my question me me too i agree with him my question to you now for this and uh try not to wax poetic too much about this sure sure sure. but uh is so he's had a temporally a huge span of time that he's been a recording yes. artist. And he's had very different phases. Phases, yeah. Is that so? What are the different phases that There's he's gone through? There's the early, early singer-songwriter that you find in Closing Time or Heart of Saturday Night. There's the jazz enthusiast who's sort of a beatnik in, in, in uh, Nighthawks at the Diner and and Blue Valentines. And, you know, the same thing in, a, in, in um, uh, close, not Closing Time, uh, Small Change, which is one of his better, uh, one of my favorite records of his, which sounds nothing like this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Heart Attack and Fine, where he sort of he goes he goes from basic L.A. singer songwriter to beatnik to sort of troubadour, where he sort of he he's kind of a troublemaking guy. He's kind of he's sort of you know lot, that's where the booze and the whiskey and all that sort of identifies with Tom Waits is the later part of the '70s, where he's sort of singing songs about about hookers from sending him messages and songs about, uh, you know, the song heart attack and vine, things like that. And he's getting, he's getting covered by people. He's getting attention, but then the eighties come about and he's a different person. Cause he's talking, he's basically sort of his trombone rain dogs. Frank's wild years is that sort of strange German expressionist carnival rock kind of it's strange. It's, you still can't categorize it. You can only categorize it as Waitsian. Mm-hmm. You know, he created his own definition. Um, I and it, it none nothing's better than the other. It's just different. What's your favorite phase of his? You don't have to say it's better, but what do you like best? Of My his favorite. Phases? Well, I fell in. I fell in at both the eighties and the seventies because immediately after I finished Soldier Fest Trombones, I went right into Closing Time. Um, I love the eighties, and it's the it's the weirdest version of him and it's just because that's that's where he spirals out and just finds different sounds you know there's a track called david the butcher that's instrumental and it's just you know it could basically play for any movie it could play for any peewee's playhouse segment it's just it's just odd yeah odd and you don't see that in later i mean you see some things later on and that's why i really liked um you know personally i love orphans his compilation of he has this 53-track compilation of just songs that never went to an album. And he does that around 2007, 2008. And I love that. That's helped me through uh, a very, very monumental, uh, acrimonious uh, breakups and a lot of changeover in my life. That record, uh, which could basically classify as three separate albums because he puts the rockers on one, the ballads on another, and then just the whatever experimental stuff on the other um sorry i'm waxing poetic now i gotcha uh 
I would say the 80s, but my heart is with Orphans because I just love each and every one of those songs. Sure. So here's another, and you know what? You love the 80s, so does Michael Ian Black, and we all like Michael <laughs> Ian Black. Uh, but here's another review or a piece of a re- review that I liked from this because, um, you know, like when it comes down to it for me with this record uh, is that this is my first experience of Tom Waits, like my first like diving into the deep end with him, you know, diving into the deep end in terms of listening to a whole record, not like, you know, whatever is, whatever you think indicative Waits is, but like, you know, there, there, there was a lot of like, you know, stuff that he, he had to live up to that I didn't even know what it was. And you know what? Like when I was, and I was very skeptical when I listened to the first listened to this because it all seems so pastiche. And I was like, Oh, it's nice that he got the country bear jamboree as a background band for all this <laughs> stuff, you know, but like, here's something that, um, so I agree with with Pitchforks, the, this dude from Pitchforks review, even though I don't know his older stuff, but I, I appreciate that he said that. And here's something that Ben Radiff said from Rolling Stone. This is a review you referenced earlier yes, on the podcast. More so of this the is same. From May 13th, 1999, right, where he said it was more of the same. So he goes, through his, and this is how I kind of, I guess I kind of see Waits as a, uh, a, a Waits newbie, is that through his film roles in the 80s and 90s, and then the simultaneous rate rise of an alternative culture that lionizes him, Waits has become the apotheosis of, Amer- of the American eccentric. We don't demand much from, from these figures, other than that they spell out their visions in chunks of an ongoing discourse. Okay. Mule Variations is just the latest installment of that discourse, and one wonders when Waits, who is not lacking for bold... Uh, dislocating ideas might treat himself to a new start. What do you think of that? Um, okay. I agree with the, with the way that we treat eccentrics, American eccentrics, because we should treat them with some reverence because there's not much of them left. Um, at, at the same time, I, I don't know that I agree with that or like, because this is a different album. Sure, as I've said before, I think this is a great entry-level Tom Waits record for people to get into, or album, or record, album, who cares. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I disagree on, on some aspects because it's, there's some difference. And also, where he goes after this is very strange. I mean, it's, it's typical for Waits because his, he's known for going into theatrical endeavors. And the next two albums he does are his musical interpretations of Alice in Wonderland and Wojcik. And so he's, he's going to do whatever the fuck he wants. I think that this album is, as I mentioned, it's, it's entry level because it basically goes into territory. He may have gone into before, but it expands on that. And it actually creates a different, it it actually expands on the landscape and builds out of that world. Mm -hmm. Um, I can agree that it could be more of the same, but I think he's also looking at it from a very intense microscope. I think that this isn't uh, an album that um, that speaks to where he's at at a certain time. I've, again, I've I've probably said that three or four times already. But I think that he's also, um, and I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I think he's he's also trying to judge weights as an ongoing artist. And so looking at this as an indicator that he's going to continue to go with more of the same. So I, so his, his opinion is probably a lot to do with him probably, you know, thinking that this is the end. Whenever anybody shows redundancy or derivativeness, our first thought as 
discerning audience members is, oh, well, this is how it's going to be. This is the height of it. He's not going to go find there's anything a plateau, new. Right. Yeah. He thinks that there's a plateau. Mm-hmm. And from, from that, I can gather he's worried about the plateau. And judging from what happens after this, I don't think that there was a plateau because he continually looks for new things. Right. So, I don't know. That's okay. Well, I, it's cool. It's a good review. I, I, don't, I don't mind it. Yeah. So, it, it's just... It, but that... I think that these two sort of... You know, this apologist and this dude that wasn't so hot on this record. You know, it, it, this hot and cold uh, feeling of it is kind of like how I feel about this record, at least at my first listen. Because uh, as Tom Waits is this big cultural thing... What he's doing is it seems like he's the reason he's so different and unique is because he's different and unique, right? Yeah. From something. Yeah. It seems like, okay, in comedy terms, it seems like he's doing an A to C, right? Yeah. But I don't know what that A is. Like, I don't think it's just all music or all mainstream music. I think that there's something specific things to that A that he's subverting or that he's going around this B with, and I don't know what that A is. Yeah. I'm not saying that I dislike him because this record, again, it grew on me every goddamn time I listened to it. You know, for the most part, it grew on me. I don't think I'm going to go back and listen to that spoken word tr- track again. I think you, you need to, you need to go backwards and forwards. I <laughs> well, if there's two ways to go, that's how I'm going to do it. Uh, but like, you know, that that's the that that's what I got from this. It seems like he's subverting something. And I don't know what that something is. Yeah. And maybe that is is attenuating my uh, my ability to like really get into him. But this is the first goddamn record I've heard of him. This is just and this is just my. It's really it's great that it's it's your first one. Yeah, and it was a good record. Again, I think a lot of these songs fucking rock. They grew on me a whole bunch, and I think this is good. And I will definitely look more into him and probably listen to a lot of the tracks on these record again. Great. But none of this is pizza to me. None no. of this I can just listen to whenever the fuck I want. Oh, this no. is like I need to be in a specific mindset or feeling for Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Is takes, it the same with you? Same. Well, it takes a while for it to be pizza. It takes a while. Okay. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been. Um, it's yeah. To, a for, while. It, for it to become a while. Yeah, it needs to be ingrained in you for it to be pizza. And that's the same with me. Like whenever I have a very strange shuffle on my iPod. I think yeah. Right. Everybody everybody can say that. Everybody can attest to their their shuffle eventually takes on their personality and also sometimes plays too many Beatles songs. Okay. Um, but whenever it plays a Tom Waits song, I'm happy to hear it. Because when you become a Tom Waits song, uh, fan, even bad Tom Waits is good Tom Waits. Okay, that's fair. It's good music still. Um, cuz I don't think he's he's never done a fucking uh, like, you know, he he didn't at no point has he yet only published country albums like Dean Martin when he stopped caring. And at no point has he done a song, uh, that, that David Bowie gnome song that he, that people have petitioned for him to play again, that he's, he's never played. Right. Like, I, I, I don't think he's ever embarrassed himself. He's very much held on to his artistic integrity. And, you know, he might've swung and missed in the eyes of some fans and something in some cases, but I don't think that he's ever truly had a fucking Titanic. Yeah, failure. like a, he has never had a, a fucking self-portrait or masked an anonymous like Dylan, mm-hmm. or had a, a, a an album where he's barking like a dog like Frank Sinatra, or or had a you know he's never had a mull of Kintyre like uh, fucking Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. I I don't think he's he's never fully embarrassed himself, and his restraint is speaks more to me <clears throat> than his than his discography 
because he only presents things when he's ready. So I'm looking forward to the next time he decides to release an album, which hopefully will be soon because there's some new songs coming out. Yeah, because 2011 was his last record. Is that right? Yes. I think that's what I saw. Right at the end. It was it essentially 2012. Well. And if you ever want me back for the other records. I do. Okay, cool. I do. Uh, we'll have another. And this will be less than two hours and 20 minutes. God because we got, we got all your bio stuff out of the way. But no, I appreciate you coming on and talking to me about this. Thank you're, you, man. A, you're a dude that speaks intelligently about this and you know all this stuff. And so, yeah, I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to Tom Waits about with. You can. So, yeah. Um, do you have anything to. If anybody gets this far, do you have anything to plug? I got nothing to plug. Stop asking me to do another Dean Martin show. It ain't yeah. going to happen anytime soon. Take that. Yeah, there won't be an Evil Dead 4, and there won't be a Dean Martin show. Yeah. Well, but, but there, there will. Eventually. Eventually, oh, I'll get to fuck. it. Fuck, what are you doing? What? What are you doing? Watch what are you going the- back on your goddamn word? I know. Sorry. All right. There'll probably be a Phil Casale show, um, because cause I think, you know, the individual trumps the, trumps the impression. But also, listen to the bitch seat. God damn yeah, it. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Seriously. Phil you, spit when he said that. I really did. And he, I know that he noticed that. I noticed it. I watched. You watched me watch the spit. That's right. Drop. Like, drop, uh, hit the ground. Um, listen to the bitch listen seat to the in bitch. the tub. Listen to it under blankets. Listen to it when you're cold anytime. Seriously. The last few episodes have been intense. Uh, the Puya episode, great. Yeah. She's, she had a strange... She had a life. Um... You know, Angela Cobb, I hope she comes back. We can talk more Beatles with her. Um, every, You know, everybody's great. And the, the lineup that we have coming up is going to be pretty cool. I'm really looking forward to getting to talk to Usama Sadike. I think he's really a fucking unique, brave, comedic, you know, voice coming out of, uh, coming out of New York City. So check it out. Please. Check it out, guys. Help me out. And so to finish this off, we're going to say to all of you out there in podcast land that's gotten this far into the goddamn episode, uh, you know, just like Tom Waits does, do you, because that appears to be Tom Waits's thing. Do you and do you on your own goddamn schedule whenever you, you want. understand. Yeah. You and got I, it. I appreci- See, I get it. And this is what we're saying to you. And this is what more importantly, Tom Waits is saying to you. Do stuff that you want to do when you're proud of it on your own goddamn time. And don't let anyone rush you into it. Uh, on that note, guys, uh, take care of each other and uh, up the punks. And get behind the mule. Get behind the mule. Hi guys, this is Chelsea. This is Evan. And we're the hosts of Call Us Crazy, a podcast all about diagnosable disorders because I have Tourette. I have obsessive compulsive disorders. So we're very, very passionate about destigmatizing and normalizing these and other disorders. We want to entertain and enlighten. Evan, how many glasses of whiskey have you had today? I have had zero and I'm going to a holiday party, so I'm going to fix that. Well, you have, though, been drinking. I've had wine. Okay. And did you just, or did you just not peer pressure me into drinking one with you? Um, I wanted to drink with you, so I nudged you in that direction. <laughs> Fair enough. What would you do if one day you went home and there was no whiskey left in the world? I'd be bummed out, and I would hope that there was room on my credit card to get more. But what if it didn't exist anymore, Evan? Um, I would have. To, I would drink more wine. Okay, that's a good answer. Tune into Calls Crazy. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production. Hey!